Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. <laughs> the vampire lovers. Perverted creatures of the night find their victims everywhere. No rest for the vampire lovers. No escape till their evil hearts are still for all eternity. Beware. Beware the cold caress. The kiss that kills. Beware the vampire lovers. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going, man? You're just back from vacation, I believe. Is that right? That is true. Nice. Going good. How, uh, going how'd good. it go? How was vacation? <clears throat> vacation was great. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still on kind of that beach time, right? Like, I don't, I don't really know what time it is ever. You never, you don't really pay attention to the time when you're on vacation. You're just sort of on the beach, in the water, eating food. Yeah, nice. is everything it's real was, nice? Was this your first day back to work earlier? It was uh, disappointingly. <laughs> was everything kind of like gray and in slow motion yeah. the way it usually is when, <laughs> yeah, when was, you come back from vacation? It was a difficult thing, man. Um, but you know, all good things must come to an end, and uh, you wouldn't appreciate vacations as much if, if they just lasted forever. Exactly. Um, but it was very fun. You know, we had a bit of a vacation for uh. For Hammer Pub, certainly it's been two weeks since we recorded, so it will have been two weeks since the last episode when this episode goes up. So to all of our listeners out there, thank you very much for your patience, and uh, we hope you enjoy the upcoming commentary on The Vampire Lovers, which is a... um, Paul, is it wrong to say that this is like a seminal lesbian horror film? I don't think that's wrong. Is it? But the phrasing is a bit weird there, no? Like, it's... it's, I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, I think it's considered that... Certainly. Yeah, um, uh, but uh, you know, we it, it is worth noting to all the listeners out there that for this particular movie, you are stuck with uh, two straight guys talking about the vampire lovers. So uh, please forgive us that. I guess Paul, we'll, we'll do our say? best. We'll do our best. We'll so. do our best. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, before we get to that point, let's go ahead and do what we always do, which is chat about some of our recent watches. Paul, what have you seen in the last two weeks? You want to talk about? Well, on vacation, I watched a lot of like, you know, beach, like Jaws. I watched all the Jaws movies. I watched, uh, I watched uh, Crawl. I watched Rogue. Just a lot of like aquatic animal attack movies. And I made um, not only my children, but the children of my, like my nieces and nephews. I made them watch these movies, which for them was pretty interesting to see their reactions. A lot of them don't usually watch those kinds of movies. Um, but they all really got a kick out of like Jaws and SeaWorld. That was something that played really well. Um, and Crawl played really well, surprisingly, to the That's little a damn kids. Good movie. Yeah, yeah. And my girls love, love, love The Shallows. That was the other one that played like really well. Um, 
so yeah, so I watched all those. I won't go into those. Um, but I did watch a couple of bigger movies. I guess we could probably start with uh, the conclusion of the Fear Street saga. Fear Street 1666. Yes. Um, I um, I can't wait to dive into that one. I will ask uh, just one quick question. When you were watching all of these shark movies, please tell me that you gave Deep Blue Sea a little love. I did. I did. I actually planned on watching Deep Blue Sea, but at a certain point in the vacation, my mother-in-law got a little... Uh, you know, she thought that maybe we should watch some more kid-friendly fare. <laughs> so I I had to kind of back down a little bit from the constant onslaught of horror. <laughs> I know. But Deep Blue Sea was actually on the docket. That was going to be what I watched after the four Jaws movies. And then it just got pushed back. And <clears throat> finally, it was the last night. And we had watched every... I. So I did Jaws in an, an order I thought appropriate because everyone had seen Jaws before the first one. Everyone's seen it, you know, a million times. So I thought it would be cool to do the sequels in out of order. And the order I chose was part three, part two, part four and part one. And what the hell? Yeah. And the reason I did that was I thought three is an oft unsung one that is really, really fun. And a lot of people haven't, you know, like I said, haven't seen. Um, so I wanted to start with that one. Two is the more traditional sequel, uh, which I thought would be fun to sort of watch after three, like watch sort of a, an untraditional sequel and then watch sort of the the mirror image of Jaws. Because a lot of the people had never seen any of the sequels, the people I was showing these to. Um, and I thought it'd be boring to just watch them all in a row. Like, you know, I don't want to start with Jaws. We've all seen Jaws. Plus, it's the best one. So I thought it'd be fun to, like, go through these and then finish with Jaws. Um, and then four is bad. It's a bad movie, but it's very fun. It, that's how I see it. I'm like, well, it's it's bad. It's not very good. So let's let's sort of go into the weakest one and then go into the best one. Um, plus the continuity in these movies makes zero sense anyway. So it's like, to me, they all just feel like standalone sequels to the first one. Like each one is sort of a sequel to the first one and don't really like have anything to do with the other sequels. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the first one's a masterpiece. I, I, I think that's incontestable. I, I, if anyone says anything yeah, I, people have opinions, and that's fine. But if anybody believes that Jaws is anything less than a masterpiece, I'm going to go ahead and admit it. I, 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 I'm going to have to go ahead and take their opinion about everything else, maybe not so seriously. Is that, is that fair? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jaws, Jaws is a two, masterpiece. Jaws 2, I think, is great. Jaws 2, I think, is uh, uh, one of the best slasher films in the 80s. Um, three and four lose me. I haven't seen them in years. I want to revisit. But as it stands right now, I pretty much hate them um but i do want to give them another chance just because i uh i picked them up on blu-ray and i'm a completist i um, i straight up think three is a great sequel i love really three. i love three i i like three more than two um but what? yeah but what? i'm also like but i will say this three is also a commercial <laughs> Like it's a commercial for SeaWorld and there are some like cringe worthy moments, like especially the ending. It's like a freeze frame thing with like the dolphin sleeping out of the water. It's, it's very much like come to SeaWorld. 
But what I love about so it though is that poorly... after you watch Jaws three, who the hell would want to go to that right. place? That's what right. That's it's another. I I find it so hilariously entertaining that it becomes endearing. <laughs> also, like I I truly think that the idea of like Jaws in SeaWorld is just such an inspired sequel idea that I can't believe got made. Um, and I, I, the characters in that movie have such great chemistry. Like I, I would, I actually have way more fun watching like Dennis Quaid and his brother hang out and fuck around than I do watching any of the characters in Jaws 2. Because in Jaws 2, like nobody wants to be there. <laughs> like, like, you know, yeah, you've got the cast from the original movie. That's I mean, I like Jaws 2 and it's grown on me. I used to hate Jaws 2. I used to despise it. But it's really what? it has grown on me. Um, And I do like it way more than I used to. I, it's just hard because here's the problem with Jaws 2. Jaws 2, half of the movie is just aping Jaws 1. It's just it's just taking scene for scene and redoing it. It's like, oh, it's the same basic setup. He the same scenes that Spielberg did, but not as good and sort of like clear copies of them. Like and I but I, I I've grown to appreciate them more. I can now. So, and I find that movie is much, much better when you don't watch it near Jaws. Because the only time I had ever watched Jaws 2 previously would be after I watched Jaws. That's why I didn't want to watch Jaws first with the group. I was like, this movie will play better if it's been a minute since you've seen Jaws. Because you won't be just comparing it to Jaws. And that way when you go to Jaws, you know, that movie will be in the past. I do think it's competently made. Um, I do like the slasher stuff. I like the, you know, Teenagers at Sea. Although it goes on a little too long, that movie should be like 20 minutes shorter. Yeah, um, yeah, I and I think Jaws three is like a great length. I think Jaws three is really smart about how long it is and its pacing. It's much better paced, I think. Um, and Jaws three doesn't get a lot of love, so I feel like Jaws two gets a lot of love. Um, so that's another reason I I sort of want to elevate Jaws three. It sort of it needs it more than Jaws two does. Um, anyway, I, I, I like them all. I think Jaws four is a straight up bad movie. I'll agree. It's bad. It's, it's flat out bad, but it's incredibly ridiculous and super fun. I don't know. I, I find it just a blast, um, because of how ludicrously insane that movie is and how it just doesn't. And again, like all of them involve the same set of characters, like this Brody family, but none of like the continuity makes like zero sense. Yeah, the way the brothers age and how they look so marked. Well, like what their jobs like... are. Like in Jaws yeah. 3, one of them's like, oh, I I I design parks for, you know, like different uh aquatic animals and places. And the next one, like, well, now I'm a cop. <laughs> it's like none of it like what they do well i guess no it would be the bro either way their jobs change so dramatically from movie to movie and it just makes they don't even attempt to make them tie together i literally see each one as like a halloween 2018 style reboot <laughs> sequel where each one is only a sequel to the first one that's how i view that franchise Weirdly enough, there is stuff in four that very closely links it to the original movie, like bringing back, uh, you know, um, is it Mrs. Uh, Kinnerman, um, you know, and the neighbors and stuff like that. And it, it's just 
it, part of it seems like that movie tries, and then there are other parts of it where they clearly just did not give a damn. Um, I mean, the roaring shark and the it, it flopping out of the water at the end. You know, I what was it propelling itself on? Like the last foot and a half of its fin to rise that far out of the water to get rammed? Is that what was going on? Um, I mean, that's the spoilers. least of this movie's problems. I mean, the fact that, the fact that it's about a, like a, a a weird telekinetic connection. The shark, the shark, like flashes back to the first movie. It's not even the same shark. Like it doesn't. Like it makes no sense, but it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, there is okay, listeners out there, if you ever get the chance. And seek out the extended cut of it that I think was only available on um, on a CD release, I believe. But Richard Jenny, uh, uh, rest the soul, uh, he did this amazing bit on Jaws 4 that is one of the funniest fucking things I've ever heard. Like, we're talking struggling to breathe, crying your eyes out hilarious uh, when he talks about the shark's motivation and how it basically, you know, traverses an entire continent to follow this damn family. Uh, it's amazing. It's it's comic gold, well worth seeking out. Uh, I will say too, to add on to that, uh, the the sharkathon that you did. Uh, I think <sighs> Deep Blue Sea is always going to be my go to, just as far as fun shark movies go. But as far as just being damn good films, I think it's Jaws. And then probably The Shallows. Yeah, I, I think that movie is fantastic and doesn't get nearly the love it should. Oh, yeah. The Shallows is amazing. And it, it gets better every time I see it. I, I would... Deep Blue Sea... Yeah, I mean, this is this is a tough one because they're two such different movies. Yeah. Um, It just depends on my mood, you know, which one I'd rather watch. But I think they're, like, kind of, like, equally amazing. I don't know. Uh, But, yeah. No, I, I I love them all. Deep Blue Sea has got to be next up on my list. Uh, weirdly, I don't think I own that on Blu-ray, which is weird. You know, Deep Blue Sea, you mean? Yeah, I don't think okay. I have that one. So what's weird is, I have, like, is that thousands you can still of find movies that I have Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> you can still find Deep Blue Sea, I think, relatively uh, cheap on Blu-ray, and it's a good Blu-ray. Um, three, you should still be able to find at this point. Paul, I'm a completist. I did not buy the damn thing because I rented it initially. Deep Blue Sea 2, which is just astonishingly bad. <laughs> uh, I rented it. I literally red boxed the damn thing when it first came out just because. And I knew I knew what the deal was, man. Like I I knew it wasn't going to be the first movie. I knew it was only going to be linked, you know, by title only, which there is a little plot thing. There's a little bit of a connection between one and two, but I I, I kind of knew what the deal was going to be. I still was not prepared for how bad that film was going to be, but I heard so many damn good things about Deep Blue C3 and why they didn't call it Deep Blue 3. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but I wound up ordering that and I was like, well, I can't just have deep blue sea and deep blue sea three on my shelf you know on blu-ray and not have part two paul at a certain point that damn thing went out of print i don't know if it ever came back in the print maybe it did but at the time that part three came out one had to shell out a pretty penny to get deep blue sea two on blu-ray which means i had to pay a good deal of money for a movie that i actually straight up hate just because (laughs) i'm a damn completist that's amazing. The hell is wrong with that? I, you know, I'm a completist too. 
but I will say when it comes to like DTV sequels, I don't I don't know that I need them all. However, I will tell you this. A cursory glance has shown me that there is a three movie collection Blu-ray uh, that was released in the UK that is region free. Oh. That you can get on Amazon UK for like 15 pounds. Oh, which bad. isn't bad at all. That'll be like, what, 20 something bucks for yeah. all three of them. That's pretty good. And uh, I think I'm going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I Although I got to tell you, me you just uh, to, uh, I, and you know what the hell of it is, to do this. is that I still haven't seen part three because I need I feel like I need to rewatch the first one, which is, you know, fine because I love that movie. But I also feel like I need to watch two again before I lead into three. Like if I bought the damn thing on Blu-ray, <laughs> the amount of money I've that heard, I did. I heard that's bad. I heard that um, the third one was like, like you said, surprisingly good. Yeah, that's honestly, I could have let it go. But I heard so many good things about it. I was like, well, shit, you know. And apparently part three is much more closely linked to two than two is to one. So I just, I need to build up and just, you know, um, uh, just get a good run up to watch one and two, especially two again, before I go into three and, uh, it hasn't happened yet. They're sitting on my shelf staring at me. Like, are you really just gonna really just spend that money to just let us sit here? You know? So anyway, Paul, fear yes. street parts one and two <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, that was... were excellent. Did being the resident RL Stein fan here, how did Fear Street 1666 measure up for you? Did the series stick the landing or did it fumble it all terribly? Oh, it stuck the landing. Uh, these movies are like, uh, I mean, I can't, I don't, I don't think I can express in words how much they mean to me. <laughs> like they are, I, 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 I'm afraid to talk about them because I'm worried about how hyperbolic I'll probably be, you know, like it, that I'm so bad. close Come to on. them right now. Both barrels. I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm going to be like, this is the best slasher trilogy of all time. Like I'm kind of feeling that way right now. Like, and I know that that is not a thing I should say. I know scream exists, but I'm not talking about individual movies. I'm talking about trilogies. Well, yeah, I was going to say, is I scream think... even a trilogy anymore? Well, I just, I think you could argue that one, two, and three are kind of their own thing. And then everything that happens after that sort of expands the series. But I think one, two, and three serve to exist as a sort of self-contained trilogy. The end of three concludes what one sets up, for sure. Okay, I'm not a Scream 3. I'm not a Scream 3 hater, but I'll say this. I would take any Fear Street movie... Over Scream 3. So, yeah, and I feel like we're going to get a lot of hate mail for this. But That's fine. I, I, okay. And I also know, like, oh, man, this is... I, and I don't want to... Paul, it, equally. It's, it's dangerous equally, waters to compare equally, these to Scream. I will say this. I, w- I would take any Fear Street movie over Scream 3. Equally, mm-hmm. I would take either Scream or Scream 2 over the entire Fear Street trilogy. I just want to make that clear because I think Scream and Scream 2 are among, like, the best horror movies ever made. Forget slashers. Yeah, they're both really great. And as standalone films, they, yeah, they're they're amazing. Um, and and the, the real problem here, Jinx, is that 
you don't you don't get the Fear Street movies without Scream. So I don't think it's fair to really say, and I would never, ever say that they're better than Scream. You know, that's not what I'm here to do. But it's also not really fair to even really compare them because they're, they're, they owe so much to what Scream is. And now we're talking about Scream. I love the Fear Street movies. Um, I think they're amazing. I think they, I think it's a testament to what happens when you let someone tell a long form story in movies like i keep seeing people go oh why this should have been a tv show why wasn't this i'm like because we have a million tv shows like why we can also tell long form stories in movies like you can do that that's possible and it and this proves it right like this shows that, that it can be done and it's done best when you let one creator sort of like figure out what that story is and tell the story with a collection of actors and, and make it as one piece. Um, you know, it's, it's maybe if they had done this with the star Wars movies, we wouldn't have the clusterfuck that we have, you know, it's like when you let <laughs> a, a creator actually like tell a story. Um, but 1666 was phenomenal. Um, it was a, a, an amazing way to, not just conclude the series, but unite it. Um, and, and that's the smartest way to make a third movie in a trilogy is don't just make some other movie, make a movie that embodies the, 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 the other two and sort of does something new with it. Right. So you get, you really get two movies in 1666, you get sort of the, the creation story of Seraphir and, and why all this is, is happening and you get a cool 1600s movie, which was awesome. I can't, the production values on this stuff is so good and they populate it with all the actors that we love from the other movies. That was the other really smart thing it did. Um, you know, since these are all sort of family lines that are related to one another so they can be played by the same people. Well, they even did the interesting thing too, by noting that just because we're seeing these, uh, you know the the actors that we loved from the previous True, yeah, installments. True, yeah. They look, yeah. Yeah, there's that great yeah. moment where the lead from 1994. She is, uh, you know, she is looking at a well and seeing the real Seraphir's face. So even though we're following her throughout the True. story, we yeah. understand that she's not. And the way that that's that would have been enough. But once that story starts coming to a close, and I wouldn't dare sort of tread in you know, spoilers, you know, just this far after its initial release, even though if you haven't seen them yet, go ahead and jump on that. Damn it, listeners, come on. But um, the way that Lee Janiak chooses to um, uh, uh, capture the end of that character's story featuring both actresses, I think was just so damn smart and surprisingly emotional, too. Yeah, no, it was it was wonderful. And um really satisfying and then we get sort of the 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 ending of kind of the whole franchise goes back to where we were in 1994 which it always had to um but what's great about it is you don't just get like a 15 minute denouement you get like a whole other movie <laughs> you get like two sequels in this movie um which is just fantastic across the board uh, so if you, you know, if you look at that runtime and you kind of go, man, this, this feels a little long when I look at the time, when you watch it, it doesn't feel long at all. Um, I adored these movies. The, I, I do believe put scream aside. I do think this is one of the best horror trilogies. No, I'll just say trilogies. I think it's one of the best trilogies ever made flat out. 
I think it is that good. Um, these are like four to five star movies in my book. I love them. I'm going to watch them a hundred times. Um, I, I would change very little about them. Um, I know there's this whole thing online about this one, you know, which one's good, which one's bad. Let's rank them. I mean, they're equal to me. Like all three of them stand at the top of, of being awesome. They're all, they are all phenomenal films. And while I could, I could go in there and get a little nitpicky, um, they're just, they're gifts to horror fans. Um, and, and even though like, I would love to see these things play out around Halloween, I think it was the perfect summer thing because they're slashers. But I do think these are going to be Halloween staples for me. I really think like every year in Halloween, I'm going to watch this trilogy. Yeah, I know I will this year. Um, and honestly, I think Netflix was smart. I know it's a relatively new release and I know they, they like to wait for a while, even when they do it at all, but damn it. Like they need to be putting these things out on, they need to give them physical releases. Yeah. Um, they, I have hope for it be because movies. they, because Waxwork is putting out the vinyl box set. Yeah. With so that's amazing a, that's cover art. It's like the old school, uh, paperback. Yeah, I, I, I bought, I bought that the second it was available. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh shit. Yes. Yes, please. But, um, yeah, no, I, I love one hopes movies. the Blu-ray is coming. I agree with everything you said. Uh, I could rank them. Um, but yeah, they are. I mean, I, 1666 i think is probably it it wound up being my favorite i absolutely adore 94 78 probably rounds out the pack for me but i i still love it too i think taken as a whole uh yeah i think it's one of the most successful horror franchises like horror trilogies certainly um I, i i can't think of many that sort of rival it and my god what I love the fact that it was released the way that it was with only a week in between installments. That Mm -hmm. was such fun. And that was such a gift at the same time. I think that when stuff like that happens, by the time that you reach week two, it feels like community was already sort of taking that for granted a bit, because by the time you get to the third one, regardless of what you feel about the individual installments, the fact that one filmmaker was able to pull off three different movies set in three different, arguably four different movies set in three different time periods and nail each one of them, not only within the time periods they were set, but also referencing the movies that were made within those time periods. Uh, well, mm-hmm. obviously not with 1666, but movies made about that time. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Um, you know, I don't think that Lee Janiak is necessarily getting the attention she deserves for what an achievement that trilogy was. Um, which is a bit of a bummer. Uh, I I hope that I, I I hope they give her the world after that trilogy. I I hope she is allowed to. Oh sort of yeah. I mean, if she this. doesn't, she I can't I cannot wait to see what she makes next. I mean, in one fell swoop, you know, people like to that. You know, we've talked about this before. There there are filmmakers out there that are labeled as a master of horror. And I would argue that many of them have not made anything even close to as good as what these three movies are. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, that label is tossed around. I, I agree it's with tossed you. It's around so like much. A, it's she like is one. Point. You know, <laughs> she it's is like a master something. for her. Like, yeah, I she, like I, this trilogy. If any, if anything is ever able to immediately provide you with that label, it's this trilogy. She because she she under it, she understands how to make a perfect slasher three times over and three like it. And none of them felt 
sort of samey or it, it didn't get old. Like she managed to make it feel fresh and inventive and yet self-referential. And man, I give the, this is who should be doing the new scream. I mean, th- this is who should be doing scream. Like if we're going to keep going with scream, like give it to her. Yeah. That that's who should be doing it. Like no, no offense to, I, I loved ready or not, but I, when I watch ready or not, I don't think scream. Well, I do feel like had, this trilogy come out a year and a half two yeah, years ago had it beat option. ready or not to screens then i think she probably would be helming the new scream and not radio silence i i can't wait to see what they do with it but at the same time i'm excited right. yeah i didn't mean to like shit on them i shouldn't no, no like I, it, I it wasn't it, i love ready or not i'm just saying like stylistically this is what i would think of if yeah. i was thinking of like a new screen I really but, feel as though we were kind of, and even though I did like the movie that we ultimately got, man, after seeing Fear Street, I really wish we would have gotten her version of the craft that she was working on. I mean, she didn't make a movie for, I mean, her debut, Honeymoon, was what, 2013, maybe? 2012, 13, some, somewhere Yeah, and I haven't seen it. Now I, I definitely need to see that. It's good. There's nothing in it that would point to her being capable of fear street i don't think uh and that's not knocking the movie it's just it's not what that is so don't go into it expecting that it's a quiet creepy contained kind of sort of body horror movie with uh maybe the most painful sequence involving a meat fork i've ever seen in a movie not that there are many Mm -hmm. um but after that, she was actually developing either a sequel or a remake or a reboot or a re whatever the hell to the craft. And ultimately that went under and then it went to Blumhouse and they did what they did with it, which I enjoyed. But yeah, I was going to say, I really I, wish for the record, I, I really liked the new craft. Like I, I was I was a big fan. So I, I I'm happy with what we got. I, I don't want I mean, I I'm, would love to see her version. of Exactly. Craft, but yeah, I don't want to like shit on that one because i really like it <laughs> no, no 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 i i really enjoyed it i thought it perfectly captured that 90s feel but yeah. after seeing the fear street movies i kind of feel like she would have done that too so i kind of wish we had gotten both paul well she could still make a craft movie i would be completely down i i think the craft should be a franchise i think there should be multiple crafts i do too so and i'm keep really going. hoping that covid didn't kill yeah, it's a shame. I I did my part. I paid the twenty dollars and here. rented it, and you know, so I I tried. <laughs> I tried to help. <laughs> Paul, speaking of Netflix, I watched a classic horror story. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it, but I have not seen it. So this is a. I'm not going to spend very long on this. Um, but. <laughs> It stars Matilda Lutz from Revenge and Rings. If you're familiar with her, and. Um, yeah, it's this uh, it's a Spanish made horror film that basically it has a setup like any other horror movie that you've seen um, or sorry, rather, it's an Italian film. Um, anyway, it's it has a setup that you've seen before. You have a group of strangers who are sort of brought together on a trip and their vehicle breaks down and, you know, they find themselves at this remote sort of cabin in the middle of nowhere and strange things start to happen. One of the characters is kind of a horror film buff. So of course he sees everything through that filter and comments on everything as though, (laughs) as though everything that's happening is a horror film of sorts. Like maybe they're living through a horror film. Uh, Matilda Lutz plays essentially who would be the final girl in any sort of movie like that. Um, You know, there, there is some uh, fodder for, uh, 
you know, some vicious killings that happen. Uh, there's some truly distressing imagery. The movie is through the bulk of it, more mood and then creepy set pieces than anything to the point where it wasn't enough for me to have a character commenting on it all, that it's all very much playing out like a horror movie. That's not enough for me to look past the fact that, Hey, this is all very rote. This is all very, you know, been there, done that. And then the final third hits and then the kind of the, the other shoe in the situation drops and you realize what's been going on the entire time. And it's so much fun. Uh, what it winds up being, it's truly distressing. It's disturbing as all hell. Uh, it comments on, well, shit, that's the thing. I, one of the most fascinating aspects of the movie, if I started to talk about it, if you were even remotely intuitive, and I know you are, and listeners out there, I assume you are too, you would immediately kind of suss out what the deal is. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to discuss themes or anything like that. I'm just going to say that it is worth watching the first, uh, say, hour of the movie. Not that it's a trudge. It's just, it feels very well made, very well acted, but a little uninspired. But by the time you get to the final 30 minutes, you understand why that was the case. And when you get to that final 30 minutes, it, it, it feels a little bit like a journey into hell for part of it. And then things switch and then it becomes very energetic and very fun and very gruesome. And uh, it, it, it hits like a lightning bolt. And it's it's such it winds up being such a damn good movie and one that's kind of relatively unsung right now. I'm. I know it's a foreign film, but I kind of wish that Netflix had pushed it a little more. I know it's being billed as a Netflix original, but it seems like not a whole hell of a lot of people are talking about it. And it seems like Netflix isn't really doing much in a way to change that, which is a shame because it's it's a damn good film. So if you've seen Fear Street and you feel like watching another Netflix horror movie, definitely, definitely give a classic horror story a shot. Just uh, plan on waiting through plan on trudging through some stuff that feels a little old hat to get to the final third of the movie, which will more than make it worth it to you. I think, like I said, on vacation, I pretty much just rewatched like aquatic attack movies and then like stuff that isn't horror, like vacation movies. And I revisited once upon a time in Hollywood and stuff like that. But, um, the other horror movie was, uh, <clears throat> a quiet place. Part two. I finally watched. That is one of the hit. major ones I was going to talk about. So, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, it yeah, finally hit Paramount Plus, uh, which was sort of what I was waiting for because uh, I haven't returned to the theater yet. Um, so I okay, I loved The Quiet Place Part One. I thought it was great the first time I saw it. I will say I don't think it's an incredibly rewatchable movie. I think the biggest problem with a quiet place is it's such a visceral, like I will, it does jump scares better than maybe any movie I've ever seen. Like it, it jump scares a lot of times will make me roll my eyes nowadays, but, but that first movie like really understands how to do a jump scare in a way that serves the narrative feels intrinsic in the world that the movie's created uh, doesn't feel cheap um <clears throat> and and the way it uses sound obviously 
it's so brilliant. Um, so yeah, I, I did really like a quiet place, but there's not a lot to it, right? Like that's almost some, one of the draws to that movie is that you really don't know a lot about the creatures. Um, you, you kind of get used to the world that this family sort of had to create for itself. And, and you're just sort of watching the trials and tribulations of living in that world. And that's kind of it. The quiet place part two has of course the unfortunate job of expanding that world. Um, like if you're going to make a sequel, you, you kind of have to leave behind the simplicity of the first one, explain things, you know, and, and it just, I don't know, man, for me, it just felt sort of content to follow in the footsteps of the first one and kind of indulge in the world building that like every other apocalyptic sequel likes to indulge in. Um, and I just never, I never cared. I just never cared about anybody like I did the first time around. Like, I, I don't know if it was the absence of John Krasinski um, I, I felt like the most compelling stuff was the stuff that I thought would be the lamest, which is like the flashback stuff to day one. I was like, oh, this is really cool because they kind of show you like when things first happened. And then I was like, oh, the, the, the element that's there is John Krasinski. Like he's back and he's really good in these movies and he's very expressive and having him to play off of makes all of the other characters stronger. But, like, this movie, I don't know, man. Like, the Emily Blunt stuff and, like, the baby stuff, just none of it. It just all felt so perfunctory. Like, oh, we're in a thing and we got to hide and then the monster's coming. We got to hide again. It just, I don't know. It didn't. I got to say, the movie did not do much for me. I did not love it. So I loved it. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I have a weird. I gotta talk about this before on here. I gotta be honest about things. No, I hear you. I hear you. I've I've uh, I've been honest about this franchise on this podcast before. I have a weird relationship with the films. Um, I, for whatever reason, and I will see any horror movie that hits theaters. It doesn't matter how bad it looks. Like if I have the day off, I'm I'm gonna catch it. Um, I just was so uninterested in a quiet place. The first one, uh, I had zero interest in seeing it. Um, it took me something like three or four weeks after its initial release to go and finally catch it after all of my friends sort of browbeat me into watching it. And then I watched it and you know what? I loved it. I, I thought it was great. And so my lesson was kind of learned. I was like, okay, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the marketing. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that, but I was wrong because I really liked the first installment. And then they announced the second movie and then I saw the trailer for the second movie and I was right back there, you know, not wanting to see the movie again. Like, uh, I didn't go to th theaters to see it. I, I waited for Paramount plus two. And, um, as with the first movie, man, going back into that world and spending time with those characters again, I absolutely adored it. I loved the flashback stuff that opened the movie. I loved that it. it was kind of a, uh, a mini film unto itself. But beyond that, I kind of liked the idea that, <sighs> And we'll talk about this here in a moment. Part of my disappointment with the franchise now is is uh, has nothing to do with the movies that we've seen up until this point. But I love this one simply because it feels like we are now watching a novel unfolding. And so you're right. Like, 
if this were to be a movie unto itself, like a standalone as were, which it's most decidedly not. And I don't know that that was ever its aim, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, the mother and the son and the baby being stuck in one location and then the daughter, you know, kind of going off on a, uh, a journey with, you know, the Killian Murphy character, you know, the friend who is set up in the, uh, the, the, the prequel, the prologue, as it were, like all of that stuff could feel kind of slight. And yet the idea that it plays right after the events of the first movie, it does feel like just another chapter in this world. It, it earns the part two in its title, I think, uh, as opposed to simply a quiet place Two or a quiet place colon, whatever the hell subtitle, you know, I, and so for that reason, I liked there was a certain point in the movie where it felt like, okay, this is just going to be, um, even by the end of the movie, it felt like, okay, this was just one more step toward whatever the end of the story, this grand tale is going to be. And I kind of loved it for that. Uh, I thought that the movie, you know, the first one, the first one is a good movie. I love the first movie quite a bit, but there's something about the first movie that just makes it kind of like misery porn, you know, for me, I mean, it's so damn dour. It's such a bummer. I completely agree with you that it's not, it's rewatchability, you know, is, is quite low. You know, I, I can't imagine just ever popping in the first movie to, uh, you know, to enjoy watching a horror flick, you know, the second movie feels, you know, whereas the first movie felt a little airless, you know, the second movie breathes a little bit, you know, it has a little bit of fun. Like it's, it, it, it feels like there's a little more scope to it. It feels like there's a bigger world outside of the events of the first movie, which is something I was really kind of wanting to see. And I'm glad that they did in the second movie. Um, you know, there, there are some great setups and payoffs, you know, throughout the course of the movie. And I think there is a lot of heart in the film. You know, there wasn't a lot of that in the first movie until the very end. And I think, I think a lot of people maybe think that the first movie has loads of heart in it when in fact it's really just, you know, it all kind of comes towards the very end. Whereas this movie seems to have, you know, it's hard on its sleeve from, you know, frame one going to the very end. And I agree with you that like Krasinski is missed, but at the same time, I think the smartest thing about that prologue and it reminding us of that character is that even though he is gone in the, the, the bulk of the events in the sequel, like everything that guy was and who he was to his family sort of looms large over the events, if that makes any sense. So even though he's gone, you can still feel that character, you know, guiding, uh, you know, his daughter and, you know, uh, uh, guiding his children, his family. And, uh, I, so, you know, by the time we reached the, the, the final moment of the movie, I was jazzed to see the next installment, you know, I couldn't wait. And then they announced, that the next movie is going to be helmed like written and directed by a completely different filmmaker. And so now I'm kind of bummed because when it comes to, uh, franchises to be, I sure hope that, uh, old isn't one. Um, don't ever need to see that beach again. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Um, the new M night Shyamalan movie. Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. Okay. It's man. It, 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 here's the thing. It's not the happening. It, it's not glass. Well, that's it's, good. <laughs> it's not, it's not an utter train wreck. Um, but neither still is it, you know, the sixth sense or unbreakable or signs. I would put it, I wouldn't even say it's the village. I would put it more on par with, uh, the lady in the water where did you like the village. I did. I did quite okay. a bit. In fact, I'm just um, curious. I, I do. I would put That's the thing. His first three movies, I, I think are really excellent. I think the village is a good step below those. And then the lady in the water, I would say is another full step below the village. 
and then beyond that, you get into, uh, well, the other stuff. Uh, the Happening, I think, is an embarrassment. And then Glass, yeah. Glass, I think. I watched Glass, and I thought, well, maybe The Happening wasn't so bad. Um, <laughs> I still haven't seen Glass because you scared me away from it. Paul, don't. I'm not, I'm not joking about it. Do not watch that movie. It okay. will, here's why. Not because the movie itself is so terrible, and Paul, the movie is terrible. I'm saying don't watch it because it will, in fact, ruin Unbreakable for you. Everything that makes Unbreakable great. I can't watch Unbreakable now because Glass retroactively ruins Really? It. Paul, I'm not joking. Wow. It, it retroactively, if you get to the end of Unbreakable, which is one of the best superhero origin stories I think ever told, I, I think that movie's a masterpiece. You can imagine what that character's life is going to be like beyond that. And whatever you come up with is going to be better than what Glass gives you. Mm. Uh, it's insultingly bad. I swear it's almost like he was in let me troll my own fandom mode. Uh, it's awful. It is terrible. I despise that son of a bitching movie. <laughs> I'm not joking. I, uh, there, I have a friend, uh, who he and I worked at the movie theater together when that movie came out, Unbreakable Dennis. And for years, we talked about how badly we wanted like an Unbreakable trilogy. We wanted to follow up. What happens to that guy next? Uh, who does David Dunn be become beyond the bounds of that first film? And now, you know, and then Split, like literally I got out of the theater when I finished Split and I texted him and I was like, look, you need to go see Split. Just don't look up anything. Don't don't uh, because he knew I, it was Shyamalan. So he figured it was going to be a twist. And I was like, just don't look up anything. Just please, please, please get to the theater and watch that damn movie before anything is spoiled for you. And of course, he was over the moon when David Dunn pops up the end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Split is actually a damn good film, too. Mm -hmm. We're both of the same opinion that it would be better if Glass didn't exist like that. We hadn't seen it that it hadn't ruined the previous two movies because as it is, I don't know. I don't know that I could watch unbreakable and enjoy it now. And that might sound like hyperbole. It, it's really not. Mm. Um, so if you haven't seen it by this point, go ahead and just let that one go. Uh, mm. Oh, fuck. It's terrible. Paul. Anyway, old. <laughs> old is not that bad. Old is more like the lady in the water to me where it's a fascinating concept the 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 technique on display is solid like it's a very well-made movie excellent cast um but it's populated by characters who aren't really believable human beings in any way everyone serves as either uh uh, uh you know like a cipher for the audience or you know a, a, an exposition engine and that's it mm -hmm. And, you know, and plus it, it goes back to like, you know, I would love for somebody to write like an in-depth paper on Shyamalan and rap culture and what his fascination with it must be and why he continually misrepresents it in his movies. Like, it, it's kind of fascinating to me. There is a rapper in the movie, a character named Midsize Sedan. If that tells you kind of, <laughs> what? if that tells you what level he's operating on, Paul, oh, um, God. Yeah, so Jeez. that's the thing. So when you watch the movie, you know, you can he it might be one of his best shot movies. He gets really experimental with how he moves the camera and how he makes use of the space. And, you know, it 
to his credit, he takes this open area, you know, this beach with this, uh, you know, these, these sort of wide vistas and with the way he moves the camera, he is able to make it claustrophobic. And that's, that's a hell of a feat. I think he, he, you know, and the performances, everyone does their damnedest, but there is something about you're still at a remove because you can't buy into any of the characters as being real human beings. And so the result is just that of kind of viewing an oddity. You know, I can appreciate it, but did I love it? No. Did I like it even that much? Not really. But, you know, at the same time, I can't say that it's bad either. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Shyamalan is such an interesting figure <laughs> in in filmmaking. And I do think, and I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but I do think he's somebody that gets sort of an unfair reputation sometimes like for whatever reason he's become somebody that um i don't know the people like will write off sometimes like his almost like his whole career like retroactively just because i mean look i i saw the happening in theaters and so i know the pain of like thinking that you're gonna go get a really cool movie and getting the happening um and I pretty much saw, I think I saw every one of his movies in theaters until the, I think the happening was the final straw. I think yeah. it was like, I, I went and saw Lady in the Water and I was like, oh, oh God. But, you know, I still had enough good faith from old films. You know, The Village before that really was the first time I was really let down. I saw The Village at a midnight screening with a packed audience. And we were all pumped because I think The Village came after what, Signs? Yes, so, yeah, so for me, Signs was my favorite. That was my favorite Shyamalan movie. Um, it was, like, in reverse order. It was, like, I liked Signs, and then I liked Unbreakable, and then I liked Sixth Sense. I was, like, the weird guy who thought Sixth Sense was sort of, like, his weakest movie at that time. Um, hilarious to think of that being his weakest movie at this point. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, slowly but surely, his movies started to let me down. And their hype seem to i think that was part of the problem is his movies would get so much hype and then you'd go see them and they're like these weird borderline experimental things um and then you know the happening occurred and so i walked away from Shyamalan, uh, as did i think many others uh and then you know years later someone said hey you really need to see the visit the visit is actually good yeah you know Shyamalan's coming back and he made a good movie and I put it off forever and finally I got it cheap or whatever and I put it in I was like oh th th this is good and then Split came out and I was like oh this is this is really good and and oh cool it's an unbreakable thing that's amazing um and so I started getting excited about him again and and it started to make me sort of like think about his career um, and sort of recontextualize some of it and what he was trying to do. And I, I feel like he might've gotten put into an unfair position with how people sort of treated him, but then glass came out and, you know, I heard not just you, but a lot of people really say that glass was not good. Uh, and it again, started to scare me away again. Um, and then when I saw the trailer for old though, I was like, Oh sweet, this looks awesome. Um, cause the trailer I thought was really good and, uh, you know, it, to hear, and now I'm hearing all these weird reviews 
I feel like the reviews this time around are like, it's either great or it's terrible. Or there's a third option where it's like, it's both. And I don't know how to feel. <laughs> That's kind of where I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm number three. Uh, I wouldn't say it's great. It's, it's not great. Uh, neither still is it terrible, but what it is, is, um, it sure is something. How's this? I don't think if you went to the theater and shelled out for a ticket, I don't think you would feel cheated, but you're not going to walk out of it skipping and grinning ear to ear either. If that's fair. So I'm going to watch it when it hits VOD, I'll rent it. So I, I will see this one pretty much immediately. All right, Paul, I'm just going to, uh, we're an hour and 11 minutes in. I'm just going to go ahead and skip through a couple final things and then off to the vampire lovers we go. Um, I just picked up Scream Factory's disc of Brotherhood of the Wolf, which uh, I had tweeted was, uh, you know, it, it's maybe one of the best movies ever made, possibly the best movie ever made. I don't know. Um, wow. You know, that it's, is it's up high there. praise. Paul, it's a movie that, okay, it, the bases it covers, like, the first half of the movie is based on a true story and an actual historical mystery. Uh, then it becomes like historical fiction. Uh, there's a little fantasy in there. Um, it's a martial arts flick at one point. It's a romance. Uh, there's political intrigue. Um, it, it's definitely a mystery and a whodunit. Uh, it becomes a revenge flick. Uh, straight up action movie. Uh, definitely a horror movie. Uh, honestly, if they could have just had one scene where characters broke in the song and dance, I feel like every possible genre would have been covered. Um, it is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. It's directed by Christoph Gans, who did, uh, I think, the the deeply underrated Silent Hill back in 2006 and hasn't really directed anything since, which is a damn shame. Uh, gorgeous movie. Very well made. So much fun. Um <sighs> has only ever come out here in the States on a bare bones, kind of a bare bones uh, DVD. And then a special edition uh, director's cut DVD, uh, maybe a decade after that, as I understand it, there is an imported Blu-ray, which uh, people really need to pick up because sadly the scream factory Blu-ray, which I fear is going to be uh, the way that a lot of people see this movie for the first time features Maybe the worst subtitling I've ever seen for a legitimately released movie. Mm. Um, It's shockingly bad. Um, We're talking typos galore. We're talking like uh, um, punctuation that whoever did the subtitles probably felt was more of an option than anything. Commas, they're not really a fan of. Um, there, there is a moment uh, where I think they meant to put an exclamation point, but instead they just used the number one. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> they, they, there are, there are bits, there are chunks of the movie where characters mumble, and instead of actually transcribing what they're saying or just cheating and going to any other home video release of this movie, uh, they just write unintelligible, unclear, muffled. Um, there are plot points that are botched. There are emotional beats that are undercut by the ineptitude of the fucking subtitles of this movie. And this is a French film. So, you know, it's, it's a region one release of a French film. So let's go ahead and call the subtitles pretty fucking necessary. And they are absolutely awful. I, I, it bums me out. And even as somebody who's seen the movie probably a dozen times, 
I can't tell you how often I was taken out of the movie by how poor the subtitles were and how badly mm-hmm. they were done. Um, yeah, it's it's like a five-year-old did it. Um, and a five-year-old who probably shouldn't have been paid for his work. Um, yeah, so that's that's a bummer. Um, it's not the only lackluster thing about that release. The bonus features are ported over from previous releases. And uh, it's funny, you could tell they just ported them directly over from the DVD because they're still in the 4 by 3 format, which means that even though you might have a 16 by 9 trailer, or rather, you know, maybe a, a trailer in the original aspect ratio of 235, it's now window boxed on the Blu-ray. So it's just taking up the tiniest portion of the middle of your damn television. Uh, with massive black bars on the left and right, accounting for the fact that it originally came from a four by three disc, uh, you know, non-anamorphic disc. Um, and Paul, I believe you were telling me before we started talking seven hours ago that the transfer is not even new. It's pulled from something else. So why Scream Factory is charging 30 or $35 for this release that is billed as a collector's edition when everything about it is pretty damn subpar is kind of beyond me. I don't know. Are we paying for the spiffy new, uh, you know, painted artwork on the slip cover? Is that it? You know, um, because it sure as hell isn't anything else on the disc. Um, yeah, I would heartily recommend that if you have seen brotherhood of the wolf, hang on to your previous releases and maybe seek out that import Blu-ray, which apparently includes the far better subtitles. If you have never seen brotherhood of the wolf, I implore you, do not let this release be the way that you see this movie for the first time. It might actually ruin the experience and ruin the movie for you. So please, please, please do not buy it. Um, Other than that, uh, Paul, and I know you're a fan of this movie, and I I hesitate to even mention it because we might talk for another 20 minutes, but I'm just going to touch on it very quickly, and then we're going to dive into uh, The Vampire Lovers. It'd be good. A movie that I've wanted to see for 20 some years that for whatever reason, it was it's just one of those titles, man, that I that kept eluding me. I finally picked up the Blu-ray, sat on it for about six months and then for the hell of it popped it in about a week ago. Finally got to see Deep Rising. I'm so happy. Steven Summers for I don't know if that it's even Steven Summers first movie, but it's the movie that he did directly before The Mummy starring Treat Williams and Fonka Johnson uh, and a damn good solid supporting cast. It's an aquatic horror movie. Um, it's an it, much like I mean, that's kind of Steven Summers deal. He melds horror and action and just spectacle uh, the way few filmmakers do. And I kind of miss him. And I miss that approach to certain types of movies. I, I don't think he always hits home runs, but with deep rising, he damn well did. Uh, I had so much fun with that movie and um, spoilers for a movie that's two and a half decades old, but the ending on the Island I thought was, it kind of bummed me out when I saw it because it felt like it was setting up a sequel that we would never get. And then I realized what that sequel was intended to be. Paul, have you mm-hmm. heard what the ending was meant to be? Uh, what it's hinting at? No. Oh, Paul, do you, do you have a ball cap nearby? I I don't. Oh, shit. <laughs> Get one and pull that fucker on tight because I'm about to blow your mind. Okay. So the movie ends with, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try and be as non-spoilery as possible. It ends with the survivors, whoever mm-hmm. they may be winding up on an island uh they've gotten out of the sea the creature that they fought appears to be uh neutralized if not dead they're safe and then all of a sudden 
it, you know, you, you hear a rumbling and a pounding and it pulls into a wide shot. You see that they're on an island with an active volcano and you see something stomping through the trees toward them. And you're like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? What do these poor people, our heroes, have to face next? And now, Paul, I reveal to you that Stephen Summers was developing for that same company at the time a King Kong film set on Skull Island. Deep Rising was a prequel to a Skull Island slash Kong movie that never (laughs) came to be. Crazy. Which means that we might have had Treat Williams, Fomke Jansen, and Kevin J. O'Connor. Shit, I just ruined the... You know what? The movie's old. Fuck it. I don't care about spoilers at this point. But we would have had those three characters facing off against Kong, possibly. And damn it. Why couldn't we have seen that? I just wanted them to fight different monsters. I just wanted it to turn into a like a weird monster movie franchise in different settings. I didn't necessarily care if it tied into other IPs, but I love the idea of them just going from place to place, you know, like going from a sort of being stuck on a boat fighting some aquatic horror to fighting some sort of weird, you know, foresty horror creature thing. Um yeah, no, I mean, I love Deep Rising. I've I have loved Deep Rising for many, many years, probably since it came out. Um, I like that it's again, it's one of those movies that sort of like tricks you into thinking it's one genre when it's something else, and it takes characters that belong in a different genre and forces them to be in a horror movie. And so it's really fun to see those characters like, well, we don't belong here. We don't, (laughs) this isn't what we were written to do. You know, like they're, they're very like comedic action movie archetypes that now have to like deal with a weird giant monster. And so seeing them react to that and and the way it sort of all plays out is super, super fun. It's a very self-aware movie. Um, almost to the point where the characters seem to recognize the genre shift that occurs. Um, and then it just becomes something altogether. You know, it's like, it's basically like a heist movie, like completely a hundred percent. And then it's like, Oh, sorry. The heist is just not important anymore. Now you just have to survive because there's a giant monster and, you know, seeing, seeing the, the kind of shift that happens. It's, it's just really funny. It's really thrilling. Tons of gore. Lots of mayhem. It's got a big budget. I mean, it's just one of those movies that I can't believe exists. Um, and that, you know, whenever those kind of happen, you just have to be grateful for them and love them as they deserve to be loved. I agree. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, and plus, Treat Williams. I mean, watching him in that movie, it's hard to believe that he didn't become like a big movie oh, yeah. star after that. Because he totally has the, you know, he, he's got the lantern jaw, good looks, but he also has the comedic timing. He has the swagger of a leading man. You know, I, I think there was a higher budgeted version of the movie that was originally going to be uh, led by Harrison Ford. And when he dropped out, the budget dropped too, but they still wound up making it with Treat Williams in the lead. And damn it, like, I think Treat Williams acquits himself pretty well as you know, uh, 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 a Harrison Ford stand in. And so why he didn't yeah, go into bigger things after that is a bit of a bummer. That's really true. And uh, honestly, I, I would prefer to treat Williams to Harrison Ford in that role. Oh, totally. Like, I don't think Harrison Ford would have done as good of a job as treat Williams in that particular movie. Get off um, my ocean line. Right. It's just, he he's not, completely. he's not, he can't, he's not that fun. I mean, that's part of Harrison Ford's charm, I guess, is that he, He's a little bit stuck up. He's a little bit dry. 
Um, and especially as he got older, you know, it seems like he got even more kind of crotchety and yeah, he, he kind of he smoked away the charm of his youth, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, I do love it. I, I will say this about the possibility of a Kong follow up. Knowing Summers, I have to imagine that it wouldn't have just been our heroes up against a giant monkey. I have to imagine that he would have had a ball creating an island full of multiple monsters, you know, um, for our heroes to come up against. And I really wish that had happened. Uh, but then, oh, you know, if it had happened, then maybe we wouldn't have gotten the mummy. So who knows? True. Paul, we need to go ahead and talk some vampire lovers. We do. All right. Now, uh, when it comes to the vampire lovers, Paul, should we just take for granted that, I don't know, our listeners out there might be familiar with the movie? Or do you think we should give them any sort of uh, any sort of synopsis, really, and, you know, set up what this movie is about? I think we can do a brief synopsis. I don't. All right. So in that case, I'll go ahead and consult IMDb, who says about the vampire lovers Seductive vampire Carmilla Karnstein. Karnstein? 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 I always thought, but. No, Shta? Is it Stellis? It could be a Shta. All right, I'm going to. I'm just. I'm going to try with that Shta. All right. Seductive vampire Carmilla Karnstein and her family target the beautiful and the rich in a remote area of late 18th century Germany. That's about right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's sure. fair. Not a whole hell of a lot there to go from, but that's it's still accurate. All right. So let's go ahead and queue up whatever we're going to watch this on. Now, I will say that I am uh, I'm actually going to be going via Prime Video here. Paul, are you doing that, or are you going from the Scream Factory disc? Uh, going from the disc. Rock on. Well, I'll tell you what. Everyone out there, and Paul, that includes you, and that includes me as well, Let's go ahead and queue it up to the first frame of the movie proper. Now, that means that I have to get past the MGM lion roaring his ass off at me. And I'm going to move to the first frame of the film. The moment that American International Dash Hammer Films just starts to come into view. And then once we're there, we're going to do a countdown and press play together. Paul, are you good? I'm good. All right. Let's go ahead and press play here in five, four, three. Two, one, and play. An American International Hammer Films production, which is pretty interesting. We have the American production company responsible for giving us Roger Corman's, uh, you know, post cycle partnering with Hammer. So, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. It is. And it's the the last American money <laughs> that would flow through <laughs> Hammer's pockets. <laughs> Which is weird considering like this movie was said to actually be a success for both Hammer and AIP. It did well in England. It did well in the U.S. So, you know, I haven't done much reading beyond this particular entry, but it is curious to me that this was kind of their last time to play in the American sandbox, you know, when, uh, you know, when when they, they, they did pretty well with this one. It is weird, yeah that that uh, that that was truly the end. I, I think part of that was it, the writing had already been on the wall for a long time. Uh, that that America, I mean, AIP didn't really need Hammer. You know, I think this was sort of just a a titillating deal for them. The the Carmilla draw that was something that they wanted to adapt. Um, 
you know, they, they were very insistent. Like, that AIP is kind of the reason that uh, Peter Cushing's even in this movie. Because <laughs> they yeah. wanted him to be in it. And that was sort of another draw, was that he was kind of the star. You know, Ingrid Pitt, this, this was kind of her first big role. So she wasn't really a draw. Like, her name wasn't a draw at this point. Um, so really Cushing was the, the big draw name wise, even though he only plays sort of a supporting role. Yeah. I believe they were looking at an actor named Shirley Eaton, uh, to play Carmela or Miracala or Marcella or <laughs> one of, how many one other, of them. how many names she has in this movie, but, uh, one of yeah, those names. <laughs> Apparently the production was kind of keen on having her in the movie. Um, uh, she was originally recommended for Carmela, but James Carreras found her to be too old at 32 years of age. Now, keep in mind, at this point, she had already been in Goldfinger. Um, you know, she was she was a bit of a name, like she would have been a bit of a boon for the production probably. But she was turned down because she was too old at 32 years of age. So who did they get to play the role but Polish actor Ingrid Pitt, who was... Like the same age. 32 <laughs> at the time of filming. The same age. So, and when you look well, at it, like, I mean, obviously Ingrid Pitt is a beautiful woman, but, you know, the character is meant to have been 24 years old at the time of her death. And Ingrid Pitt does not look like a 24-year-old woman, I don't think. Um, you know, no, she... No. Which is fine. I mean, you know, but at the same time, it, that's just such a weird, you know, come well, on. Careers, but but a lot of that was because he like he met her at a party and they really hit it off. And like he he liked to work with he liked to sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say right. seduce his the, the the ingenues that he employed, but he liked them to be impressed with him. And, you know, have that sort of personal relationship with them. And it felt like Pitt fit that mold more. And I think that's more than likely why she was casted. But he did have to explain it to, like, the, uh, uh, you know, there was, like, a board of representing the, the, the actors union and things like that as to why he didn't hire a, you know, an English-born actress because Pitt was Pitt was actually an American citizen at that point, I believe. Really, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is but, interesting. It you know, as you noted, like AIP, you know, they thought they were getting a Hammer film and everything that comes along with it. And so, as Hammer was developing the movie, and they ultimately cast Ingrid Pitt, who was essentially an unknown by this point. Apparently, they started getting cold feet. So. That's why Cushing was brought in to play the general in what's essentially an extended cameo so that they uh, they could at least say that they were making an honest-to-goodness hammer film with somebody like Cushing that they could throw in the poster for marketing purposes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, this movie does have a lot of classic hammer elements in it, um, almost more so than many of the other movies that were being made at this time. Like, Certainly in a more weird so way... Vampire Circus. Yeah, right, that's what I'm saying. Like, in a weird way... Because this movie is sort of credited as being, oh, this was this is when they finally, you know, they started showing nudity and there's lesbianism and, oh, it's so, you know, forward thinking in those ways. In a lot of ways, though, it's actually a far more classical outing than almost anything else that's going to get made in and around this time. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and even the opening, which it, it, this is sort of when they, and we talked about this before, they started doing these sort of pre-credit short film openings where you kind of have, um, you know, your own little horror story, this ghostly kind of depiction of the vampire um, is very gothic and moody and atmospheric, um, you know, definitely indicative of Roy Ward Baker's tastes in horror, um, but still incredibly classic. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I mean, you look at Roy Ward Baker's output at this point, you know, this was the guy who had given us... Uh, you know, Quatermass in the Pit, uh, he would do Scars of Dracula, Dr. Sis, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Uh, you know, for Amicus, he did Asylum in the Vault of Horror, and now The Screaming Starts. Uh, you know, he would do one of the very best Hammer films with The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. You know, this is a guy who understood how to do, quote unquote, like classic gothic horror, but he also didn't do it in a and forgive me because i'm not really knocking any of the filmmakers who came before this they were obviously working within their time but he brought a sort of modern sensibility to you know older tropes i think and that's what makes his movies feel maybe a little more alive and one wonders if baker had been given more films to do with hammer in that period if maybe he might have kept them alive for a little longer if he might have made them a little more relevant than they wound up being throughout the course of the 70s yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's indicative, too, of how that opening ends with, uh, you know, a decapitation, which would have in the old days been a climactic effect. You know, you wouldn't have seen a decapitation until the ending. And that would have been the payoff of the movie. Now you open with, you know, breasts touching across like in this very salacious way and then a full on decapitation that you see entirely on screen um and then the credits play you know it's 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 telling you well this isn't your father's hammer movie um but it's still very much a hammer movie um so i i do i do really like sort of i don't know the mentality this movie has towards melding the traditional gothic elements of hammer with um sort of the 70s need to be much more than that you know to appeal to a wider audience little little harder you know a little more exploitative certainly and uh you know i definitely think they had in carmilla the uh you know the source material to allow them to do that you know um just to talk a little bit about its history uh i was looking up and i'm referencing by the way it's worth noting the uh, hernan barnes book again a hammer story or rather the hammer story uh peter cushing sorry um <laughs> carmilla i i will always do that when peter cushing appears on screen usually i mute myself but i didn't this time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Carmilla was written by an author named Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, who serialized his story between, I believe it was December 1871 and March 1872 in a magazine called The Dark Blue. And uh, this story pretty much served as the basis for a pitch from a group called Fantal Films, uh, who went to Hammer proposing a trilogy of films based upon Carmilla. Uh, they did this in 1969, and they enlisted a writer named Tudor Gates, who is credited here for the final screenplay, to, quote, tart up the storyline considerably. And, uh, well, as we'll see, he, uh, he, he did just that. Uh, but Hammer went for it. They went for that partnership with Antal to do this trilogy of 
uh, Carmilla Karnstein movies, and uh, they received $400,000 from AIP. Again, known for this point for the Roger Corman Poe films. And uh, the thing is, in developing, apparently AIP called for tweaks to the script, including having the, uh, as we'll see here later on in the movie, having the mysterious man in black live at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently he was meant to disintegrate along with Carmilla, um, but he was left alive so that he might lead into the sequels. So, yeah, so they got the movie sort of up and running. And... Um, <laughs> Apparently had some issues uh, developing the property. Uh, as with a lot of movies of the era, they uh, they sent a screenplay onto the censors, the BBFC, and there was a gentleman there named John Trevelyan who warned Hammer that Gates' screenplay contained, quote, a dangerous cocktail of sex and horror, uh, featuring material that apparently they wouldn't have been keen to pass even with an X rating. Uh, and apparently Trevelyan even quietly contact, <clears throat> excuse me, contacted uh, James Carreras to influence the production to, quote, keep this film within reasonable grounds. Um, and here's the thing, like watching the movie as it exists right now, I don't know how successful he was at that. I can't imagine 1970 a much harder version of this film. Can you? Not really. I mean. Well, it's interesting you point that out because, like, part of the reason that they wanted to make the Vampire Lovers at at this specific time was this was when they finally revised the X certificate in Britain. So they they changed the age to 18 from 16, um, and therefore the censors were willing to allow more than they had ever allowed before. Um, so Hammer wanted to take advantage of that immediately. So they were specifically seeking properties that would lend themselves to nudity and, and things that they previously hadn't been able to get away with. Um, and so the Vampire Lovers came along and was sold to Carreras as being, you know, a very heavy, heavily lesbian leaning property you know hey let's take advantage of that let's exploit this and of course who do they hire but Roy Ward Baker who's like the last guy in the world who's going to to make (laughs) something exploitative like that's the one thing that really always blows my mind about Carreras is like he would set out to be like let's let's do this the shittiest way possible but then hire these like artistes who would then go, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to make something really, really good. And we'll just sort of pretend like we're going to give you what you want and trick you into releasing something that's a lot more highbrow than you probably think it is. Um, and that's essentially what what happened here. But it was it was so much, though, like to your point, the censors were still against a lot of what they were doing. They had to push the release date back so that way it would meet the dates of when the certificate changed. Because initially it was going to come out, and then I guess they pushed back like those certificate changes, and it wouldn't have been able to be released as such. And so they had to literally like push back the release to when the certificate would have landed. And so it ended up becoming like an October Halloween-y kind of release, which I think is really fun that this came out around Halloween. Absolutely. That's funny. We just saw uh, the Man in Black uh, come into the scene, and pretty much leave just as quickly. Um, you know, he, I, I don't think we'd see him again until, uh, 1995's Halloween six, the curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> but, uh, 
Same guy. No, I'm I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. He appeared briefly in Halloween Five as well. Uh, now, what do you think about that character, Paul? Because I got to tell you, like I, I have not seen Lust for a Vampire. I admit it freely. I'm a bad Hammer fan, and Twins of Evil. It's been a good decade since I've seen it, so I can't recall if the Man in Black actually figures into those stories, or if much more is said about him. But I will say this: just watching this movie. And seeing that it's John Forbes Robertson playing him, I want to believe that it's Dracula. Well, it's it's funny you say that because they offered that part to Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> that was who they wanted to play. Were they just and considered he, to be interchangeable, do you think, those two guys? Well, I mean, clearly, yes, because he ended up playing uh, Dracula as well. <laughs> that's, why, um, that's why I want to believe that he's Dracula, because eventually... He is Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. And and he, I mean, I don't know. Ham, you, you know, the vampire continuity in Hammer movies is like, you can kind of make of it what you will. Like, for all intents and purposes, he might as well be Dracula. You know, like the man in black. Like, it would sort of make sense. To answer your question, though, um, I am also a bad Hammer fan and haven't seen Lust for a Vampire. I had read that there's a character in it that, like, you could sort of perceive as the same, but it's not, you know, it's not the same sort of thing. Um, But there is a character that's sort of that is supposed to represent that same guy. But I, I don't think they handle it the same way. I don't think the continuity is all there. Yeah, as I understand it, like there is, um, you know, the the chronology is wacky. The continuity is all but non-existent. You know, it just kind of loosely hits upon the idea that the Karnstein family uh, is responsible for all the evil across the three movies. Which, again, you know, we talked about this last time. Um but even though it's widely considered to be the Karnstein trilogy, there are five films sort of connected to the Karnstein characters. Uh, you know, you have the main trilogy, which is, uh, oh, this, obviously, the Vampire Lovers, Lust for Vampire and Twins of Evil, but also the Karnsteins figure into uh, Vampire Circus and, um, uh, oh, damn it. Help, Paul. What's the other movie that they... Uh, There's a Karnstein in Captain Kronos. And Captain Kronos. Thank you, yes. So, I, I don't think they're intended to be, you know, the same, but they have the same name. <laughs> well, I mean, if they're vampires and they're called Karnstein and they're in a Hammer movie, like... Right. I, yeah. I'm going to make that leap. I'm going to think yeah. that there's got to be some sort of connection. Well, part of it is that, like, with with Kronos specifically, like that was a movie that was just sort of give the, the person was given carte blanche to make it and they did what they wanted to do. And there wasn't really any collaboration on, you know, continuity or existing stuff with the other movies. But like you said, because of that, because it was sort of in that hammer cannon and has that name and it's from that same time period. Like it's hard not to count it as continuity with those characters, but I love Kronos. Kronos is great. I wish we had 10 Kronos movies. We should have, uh, it is worth noting that Tudor Gates, the writer of this film, he did 
go ahead and pin those follow-ups, at least uh, Lust for a Vampire and Twins of Evil. But weirdly enough, before he did, uh, before he did the Vampire Lovers, he actually worked on the uh, the Mary Vava film. Uh, oh, tell me if I'm mispronouncing this. Is it Danger Diabolique or Diabolic? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I again, I, I'm I'm bad. I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> I haven't either. But and it's I fan. believe it's Danger Diabolic. Or, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I could he be wrong. Did, uh, he did Barbarella, uh, the 1968 version with uh, Oh uh, yeah, Fonda, which is kind of cool. I recently wrote about a uh, a remake, rather a television series adaptation, which sadly never happened. That I really wish had. Um, but yeah, it's kind of neat to think that he actually he was writing. You know that sexier fair as it were you know before he even got to the vampire lovers yeah no that's that's really cool um and it kind of makes sense because he brings he brings an edge to this movie narratively like it's it's well paced like it it flows really well and it's it's sort of there's an intensity kind of beneath the surface i mean some of that's because it's very well cast um, I mean, Cushing, even though he's he's in a bit of a supporting role, which is always weird to see, you know, because you just kind of if he's in a movie you're like, well, they, he should be the main character. Right. Like <laughs> Peter Cushing's here. Let's just pay attention to him. Um, but I actually think it, it lends a lot to the movie to have him in a supporting sort of role like that. Um, but no, yeah, I, I, I think the uh, the writing is is very strong and. You know the dialogue's good. The it it sort of flows well. That kind of makes sense that he came from that background. Yeah, I do think these scenes are really effective, and I think it's neat that the movie almost has two prologues. You know, like we we yeah. have the prologue proper, and then this all of this we could be fooled into thinking that the movie proper is going to feature Christopher Lee and his daughter under attack by this, uh, you know, this obvious like supernatural force, this vampire. But that's kind of a bait and switch too, because this is really just more prelude to what the, the rest of the movie is going to be, which I think is, you know, I think some people would look at that and think it's a little sloppy. I, I think it's actually clever as hell because it keeps, you know, me as a viewer, it kept me on my feet, you know, wondering or on my toes rather wondering you know, what the hell was going on? It kept me a little shaky and unsteady as if you were wondering, uh, you know, whether or not the movie that is actually the movie proper, you know, once you get to the Madeline Smith character, like if that was going to end abruptly as well, if the whole movie was going to wind up being rather episodic, you know? Yeah, true. And I think it probably would have. I mean, Hammer doesn't strike me as the kind of studio back then even that would really want to do an interconnected trilogy that was complex like that. I mean, all of their grand franchises were still each movie kind of works as its own standalone thing with very little continuity, you know, like even the Frankenstein and Dracula movies, there's almost nothing connecting those films other than, the care, you know, the the titular villain, and often, you know, some beginning that ties it to the previous entry. So I don't know that we really would have gotten some sort of like deeply connected trilogy, no matter what. Yeah, yeah, and even within this film, you know, I mean, it seems like there there are enough 
gears shifted that, you know, there's, there's almost a reading of this movie that it might've provided a full trilogy in its own right, you know, with all the bases that it sort of covers with the various characters and, uh, you know, uh, 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 plot points, but nevertheless, that's, that's not the case. And what we do have, I think again, is kind of, uh, you know, really surprising. And, um, you know, you can't quite draw a beat on what the story is going to be, which I like. Mm -hmm. Scenes like this um, and the dream sequences and the attack sequences obviously have kind of an air of uh, danger to them, obviously, but sexuality as well. And Paul, you and I were talking before we began recording about, you know, how the movie is looked at as being kind of... a bit daring for its time in, you mm-hmm. know, depicting, you know, its lesbian themes, but also some of its makers have sort of fought against that notion. I'm wondering uh, what was your point of view on that? And the, the, the makers sort of shying away from that. Do you think they were doing that to protect themselves? Because I watched this movie and I think, okay, there's no way that they didn't know, you know, like there's no well, way. That no, because the original novel, deals with it right yeah. i mean like that's that's part of the draw of that novel and this certainly wasn't the first time it was attempted to be adapted but it was definitely the first time it went more deeply into it i think it's i mean inane to say that anybody involved in this production was unaware of its lesbian leanings i mean that just doesn't compute for me um it's incredibly clear uh, but admittedly, you can tell the the filmmakers and the actors and everybody involved handled it with extreme subtlety. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to those scenes. But what I mean by that is subtle, though. Uh, I mean, through, I, I, in terms of the whole narrative, yes. In terms of the scenes where it's happening, no. It's not subtle when it's occurring, but it's subtle. It, this is my thought. Of it. This is my my opinion. Is that when, like, in the in the scenes where the where the two women are sort of like, you know, kissing and things like that. Obviously, it's it's not very subtle. But how aware those characters are of that connection in other scenes, I think, is handled with with more subtlety than it gets credit for. Um, you know, their, their, their relationship is a little bit, I could see it being perceived by the average audience member as like playful or sisterly until it isn't. And I think that's what makes it subversive. Um, Carmilla is just really, really friendly. Well, that's, that would be the opinion of somebody who didn't (laughs) want to see what was really happening, right? Like, 100%, but, you're right, but that's, yeah. that's brought about by the filmmaking, like by the story and how it's being shot and how the actors are portraying it. When I sit and listen to a commentary with, you know, Ingrid Pitt and Roy Ward Baker on it, and they're both kind of saying like, like not to, you know, disparage the actual people who made this movie, but you know, when she's kind of like, Oh, well, you know, the problem is, people always label this as lesbianism and that's not what it is. And uh, people are just seeing what they want to see. When I hear stuff like that, then I'm kind of annoyed because that just feels pretty hard. I don't know, pretty uh, dense. Like, and, and 
to me a, a perspective that is forced and not really accurate to i think what they know is the truth um i think it's probably just coming from old backwards perspectives that they might have <laughs> um based on when they grew up and their age and things like that not to you know categorize people or make assumptions about them but um it it leaves a bad taste in my mouth for sure did the doctor really need to pull down her top to get an accurate read on whether or not her heart was beating no that that was definitely a note (laughs) (laughs) jimmy carreras in the background with his pages oh yeah career i mean that's the thing is this movie was sold to him as like oh there's nudity and you know women kissing and this is what you can really exploit and and make a lot of money this is what the kids want today um whereas roy ward baker i mean ingrid pitt described her character as asexual which i thought was really probably not the correct use of that term um and i think what she meant i think what she meant was just like pansexual probably pansexual yeah right i'm like i I think what you mean to say not to correct you or whatever it is because you're the person who played that character but i think she meant you know there's an eroticism and an overt sexuality to the vampire in general right like and we've talked about that before on um you know dracula episodes um and that sexuality is just going to be applied to the person that she sets her sights on. Um, So if that, you know, whoever that is, man or woman, is sort of irrelevant. So I guess perhaps their uh, disinterest in calling this a lesbian, you know, seminal lesbian movie and thinking about it more as about a celebration of sexuality um that is a better way of maybe phrasing it than just saying oh uh, that's not the right reading blah 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 because you know certainly i think there's a lot of different ways to interpret that stuff in this movie because of how they present it that's fair i like ingrid pitt was an intelligent person though like she had to have known that oh she knew yeah you know I, it's like saying the people who made nightmare 2 didn't press... know it was a gay movie you know exactly like, i mean like they knew <laughs> they all well, knew but it's that's why it bugs me that, that it would be an audio commentary with she and baker where she was saying oh well that's the incorrect reading like at the time it was made if you want to pull that fine but years after the fact like yeah yeah well and even like there was some weird stuff with it because even I, th- I think Madeline Smith too kind of insinuates in several interviews that she's not like a huge fan of that reading or maybe just not happy with that she did it. She's kind of she's kind of unhappy with the fact that she appeared naked in a movie. Granted, none of this was thrust upon them. Um, they had the choice, and as as I understand it, Roy Ward Baker was very respectful. He ensured that it was a closed set. Even the producers weren't allowed on the set, which was kind of unheard of in the Hammer days. So, like, it seems, outside looking in, that it was handled as tastefully as possible when it came to the production. Um, Even though Ingrid Pitt talks a lot about how she didn't care and she 
flash the producers like outside of shooting like she just was like yeah i was happy with my body like whatever can, <laughs> people can, can look we at it talk about that story for a second yeah i i feel like we're getting ahead because this is like we aren't even at that scene yet but yeah we can talk about it <laughs> oh no i didn't think it was part of the scene itself i just thought it was uh um, well, I mean, yeah, I guess it was leading up to that scene. Okay, we can hold off on it. But uh, no, no, I mean, we're already actually... on it. You might as well. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> let me uh, let me open this book up here. I'm gonna have to read directly from it. Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to finagle a couple of things here. Paul, entertain the audience. Well, um, we're in a classic hammer moment here. I should say we've got the carriage. You know, I. So much of this movie completely embodies the classic gothic hammer movie. Um, the costuming, the the sets, I mean, great set design. Um, just a lot of moments that are reminiscent of some of Terrence Fisher's movies, you know, like a lot of a lot of sort of aristocratic folk uh having sort of lofty conversations unknowing about what they're about to step into um and i think the 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 window dressing of it all makes the more salacious bits land harder um you know whereas had it just gone full on over the top insanity it may not have been as shocking and I also think, though, that might have kept it at arm's length from the audiences it was so desperately trying to reach. You know, last week we talked about Vampire Circus, which came after this movie. Um, But I think Vampire Circus leans so much more into the craziness that the movie as a whole probably works better. But then some of the more things that are shocking maybe are diminished because they're not up against the prim, proper, incredibly Britishness of the classic gothic horror stuff that this movie tends to employ. Okay, Paul, are you ready for this? I'm just going to read the entire sidebar from the Hearns Barn book. uh, Or Hearns Barnes, rather. Ingrid Pitt was offered the starring role in The Vampire Lovers soon after meeting James Carreras at the premiere party for Alfred the Great in 1969. The full frontal nudity demanded by the script bothered her little. Quote, I remember my first nude scene with Maddie Smith was coming up, and although neither of us particularly minded, at that time it wasn't an everyday event. Jimmy Carreras was okay about it, but I was told that the other producers, Harry Fine and the Michael Stile, those were the gentlemen from Fantal Films, were a bit po-faced. I was walking to the stage when I met Fine and Stile, looking very dejected, walking in the opposite direction. I felt so sorry for them. As I drew near, I stopped and ripped open my dressing gown with all the brio of an experienced flasher on Hampstead Heath. (laughs) The vivacious pit again bared all as Countess Dracula and spoofed her reputation as the queen of early 70s horror in Amicus's The House That Dripped Blood. After a brief appearance in The Wicker Man, her career continued away from the genre roles that made her a cult figure. Her later film work includes Who Dares Win and Wild Geese 2. She made her best-known television appearances in the comedy of Errors, Smiley's People, and Doctor Who. One of the most prominent and popular of all Hammer stars, Ingrid is now a successful journalist and author. At least she was at the time of this writing. Unfortunately, she passed away about a decade ago. 
uh, due to heart failure, I believe. She collapsed on a city street and died a few days later, which is unfortunate. I believe she passed away at 73. Well, yeah. Hey, we no, kind of found Definitely a loss. Um, oh, yeah, here we are. Here's one yeah, such scene. No undercurrents <laughs> here whatsoever. Nothing right. to be read between the lines. Well, and to focus on the lights there and then the They're way Madeline Smith sisterly. But you know what, though? Like, again, I could see that reading, even though I think it's incorrect. Right. I could see someone convincing themselves of that. And I think that's that's the subtlety of the movie is it works up to the kiss. Even with that look in Ingrid Pitt's eyes, which is just pure lust to me. Like, well, that- and. Yeah, but I think, like, the the sad reality is, like, if that was a man, same exact, well, couldn't be the same scene, but, like, a similar scene with a man involved, then it would, then every audience would, at that time, would unequivocally believe this is sexual, right? I think this movie, I think the way Roy Ward Baker shoots it is he was trying to challenge those norms and expectations and build up to sort of the overtness of what the story is putting forth. Um, Because, like, until they actually kiss, there are definitely some audience members that would watch this movie and convince themselves that that wasn't what they were seeing because it wasn't what they wanted to see. And Do you then, think leading up to that kiss, though, like, because, man, like, and we've seen shades of this sort of thing in vampire movies going all the way back. With for sure. To for the sure. Of Dracula. For when sure. Emma, yeah. when Madeline Smith walks down the stairs with Carmilla, she looks deeply satisfied. That oh, had yeah. to have been yeah. a note that had to have been. Yeah. The direction. Yeah. No, I, I'm not saying that that like certainly that I don't see it that way. I mean, like, yes, I. There is definitely a, a, a relationship between those two characters that is, in a similar way to the Dracula movies, fulfilling, you know, Emma in a way that she's not been fulfilled before, right? Like, it's, it's awakening something in her, and it frightens her. Um, and Ingrid Pitt is definitely, you know, drawn to her innocence, um, and, and again, this is, this is very much a traditional hammer Gothic with the infusion of like with a queer infusion, uh, and a more overt sexuality. And that's, I think, supposed to be the hook. It's like, oh, we're, we're doing a sort of early Dracula movie, like a horror of Dracula kind of movie. Um, only this time it's Dracula is a woman, right? Uh, that, that's, that's the draw. But I think Roy Ward Baker understood that to do this sort of artistically, it needed to be done with a little bit of care. I think other, another director would have been a lot more blunt and coarse with the, uh, exploitative elements of the movie. How do you think? Uh, I actually think it's really. Ta- I think it's really it. tasteful. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's all very tasteful. I, I I think when you talk about other directors, like I immediately think when we think of seventies Hammer, who else might have done this? 
like the Peter Sazdy version of this would have been far more like that movie would have gotten the X from the BBFC. I think. <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. I mean, almost several of the directors, I think, probably would have ended up in a position. I, I even think like Don Sharp or John Gilling probably would have been a bit Gilling. more exploitative. A John with... Gilling, the Vampire Lovers, would be something, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they'd be bad, but I think they'd be far more exploited. I think this is, like, the most tasteful version of this movie the Hammer could have made. That could, that could still have a bit of a, and I'm not being punny here, forgive me, but that would still have a bit of a bite. Because, you know what, you could bring in Terrence Fisher, and I think it would almost be too refined. That, like, see, would... and that, exactly. Terrence Fisher would have been way too reserved with it and he wouldn't have pushed it far enough. Um, and he would have been a lot more interested in the underlying themes than he would have the, the, the physicality and Roy Ward Baker understood that, Hey, physicality matters. Like they need to be intimate. They need to be around each other. I mean, just the fact that when Ingrid Pitts in the tub um, and Madeline Smith is sort of walking around her and undressing. There is a comfortability shared between the two characters that automatically tells you that they have an intimacy, right? Like there's an intimacy there. Um, so her nudity isn't just perfunctory. It's not there just to be there. It's it's serving a purpose within the story while at the same time being salacious for the audience if, if they want it to be that. Um, so I, I, I think that that's distinctly Roy Ward Baker's touch. How do you think this movie played as part of a double bill with a biker action flick called <laughs> Angels from Hell? <laughs> um... <laughs> It was probably a very jarring transition. Okay, the I wonder which one Angels played from first. I, that's exactly it. It's like which one was the A and which one was the B. Um, either way, I <laughs> you can look it up on Wikipedia, man. Angels from Hell, because apparently they couldn't just straight up call it Hell's Angels. Uh, features a guy on a bike popping <laughs> a wheelie, a bunch of hard-looking bikers, sort of in a montage below him. Uh, kind of a sexy blonde doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, a pose, as it were. You got the title, and then at the very top, you have "He's a Cycle Psycho." <laughs> That's wonderful. I love it. I'm just um, like, how did that play on a double bill? With uh, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Below that tagline, there's a further one in a, a little caption box that reads, uh, in this box it reads, when he wanted a town, he stole one. When he wanted a girl, he grabbed one. When he wanted a cop, he bought one. I want to see this movie. <laughs> I mean, it it sounds great. <laughs> You know, I got to say, that's kind of a if if I have a blind spot when it comes to exploitation movies. Uh, well, I probably have more than a few, but biker movies are definitely in there. Like biker movies are something that I haven't really gotten into. And I feel like there's probably a lot of fun to be had there. Especially 70s biker movies. Oh, totally. That should be our next podcast. We're just going to only do 70s biker movies. Bikers every single one. 
minus the beer. Minus the beer. Yeah. Paul, sure. I didn't ask. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, okay. Right now I have a Sierra Nevada hazy little thing IPA. Uh, earlier I drank a Elysian Space Dust IPA. And then queued up after this Ele- one. I'm sorry, Elysian? So bad Elysian. it kills you, sends you to heaven? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then after that, I have Yingling traditional lager. And that's that's what I have in front of me. If I need more, I'll have to I'll have to leave you be and run and grab some. But I think Paul, this might be I am, uh, I'm five months into uh, not having a drop of alcohol. I have one more month left on my self-imposed uh a uh, bit of sobriety. So hopefully I can start drinking with you again for the last rung of hammer movies that we do. Well, you know, whatever, whatever you need, man, I, I support you. I support your sobriety if that's what you want to do. And I, if you want a beer, I support that too, but no, no, no pressure, no, no pressure no, either no, way. No beer. No I'm just, I'm on your side. It's funny. Where, I did just where I yesterday, like. yesterday before we were recording uh, this evening, like I related the story of, uh, the Curse of the Werewolf podcast to a friend of mine and told her how much, uh, how many margaritas I had in that sitting. And uh, she marveled at the fact that I didn't die. So, and looking back on it, I'm kind of surprised too. Um, feel like that would have been a hell of a way to launch the podcast, only six episodes in. You would have had to have found somebody else, but I got to imagine that would have wrangled some more listeners in. It would have been in poor taste, I think, to replace it. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. I want you to know that I want you to continue on should that happen. So uh, we we got to we got to get to the end. <laughs> we'll get to the end. We're, we got to get to I think we're going to make it. Uh, 2019's The Lodge. Or was it? 20, no, it was 2020. It was one of the last movies I saw before um, uh, before COVID. But yeah, uh, right now, The Lodge is the final Hammer film. We'll get there. I'm looking forward to some of the newer ones because I haven't seen a lot of those. Yeah, there, there's some there's some good and then there's some um the resident but um oh, i love the lodge i loved it i and i actually have like an interesting anecdote about that because i saw it in a theater at fantastic fest oh nice but now the lodge um, is good um the lodge is maybe the least hammer any hammer movie ever hammered but um but i still dig it you know um I there's some good stuff like Wakewood is damn good. I like the Woman in Black movies. Uh, I'm one of the rare dudes who actually like the Quiet Ones quite a bit. So mm. uh, the Resident, yeah, I, have, I, I haven't seen like any of those. I saw the uh, Woman in Black. I saw that. Nice. Did you see the sequel? No, I never did. Surprisingly good. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a fun watch. This is a pretty sequence. I mean, much like other moments throughout 70s Hammer, I mean, this is just ripped straight from, like, a gothic romance paperback. You yes. Know? Yeah. Well, that's the what I mean. Is, is, it's, it's walking so across the foggy classically put together, you know? It, it, it's, I don't know. Like, this feels like the least... It's weird. For all... for Given its reputation, this still feels like the least 70s... 70s hammer movie sure it it just doesn't quite fit the mold that it gets 
put into. I don't know. Like it's it's weird to me. How do you feel about Carmilla? Rather, how do you feel about her and how she feels toward Emma? Do you think it's purely predatory? Or do you think there is any sort of genuine warmth there? Or is it just part of a plot? I think she's a very Dracula-esque figure. Um, I think she is... I think she's an... I, I don't know. Her loneliness speaks to me a little bit. I see her as somebody that is sort of um, frustrated and lonely um, and looking for a connection. Um, I think she distrusts the ideal, the idealism of sort of like mortal love. I think it, it, it angers her, but I think it comes from a place of immense loneliness, like crushing loneliness and doesn't this scene i i agree with everything that you just said doesn't this scene sort of exemplify that more than any other moment in the entire movie yes well i mean this is one of the better conversations that they have together yeah it feels like Um, there's a genuine connection here like all the way from emma talking about the warmth of the sun that you know unbeknownst to her carmilla can't really enjoy and you know carmilla you know seeing the 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 sort of procession in the distance and you know, spinning on Emma and spitting at her basically that, you know, she's going to die and that everyone is going to die someday. And that kind of speaks to, you know, what with her being an immortal, she's basically saying like, you know, no matter what, I'm going to have to let go of you at some point, you know? Right. And I think as that happens, like, so I think there's always a, a you, you asked if it was predatory. I, I think it's impossible for it not to be right. Like as, as a vampire, there's always going to be, that element of of that predatorial element. I, yeah, I guess I should have there. said purely, but purely no, I do, I definitely don't think it's purely predatory, and I also think it evolves. Right, I think something that starts maybe as purely predatory evolves into something else as she is taken. So I think it's it's sort of a two way street. Just as Emma is is taken in by Carmilla's vampireness. <laughs> I'm going to make a word up. Um, Carmilla is taken in by Emma's innocence, right? Like it's, there's, it's attractive to her on an emotional level, but she also like is telling herself to reject that. And that there's a duality to her character that exists. I mean, that that's what's interesting is they're, they're parallel characters that each have a dual kind of thing going on where, Ingrid Pitt is more strong-willed and sort of forceful and yet a part of her wants to be innocent, wants to be in love and experience those joys. And then you have Madeline Smith's character, Emma, who's just seems primarily innocent, but has a little bit of a desire for something more. Um, And, gives into it when it approaches, even though she seems a little afraid, but that fear transitions so subtly to lust in those scenes to me. That's what I love. I think Madeline Smith does a really great job. And I think she's one of the better sort of hammer women um, of that time period. I think her performance is really layered and nuanced and um, 
fascinating. You know, I, I, I think it's hard. It's difficult to turn fear into excitement, joy, or lust in a small, small way. And, and she really does land that. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like, I, I think it's almost easy to dismiss her in this movie. Uh, if you're not paying close enough attention to what she's doing with her performance, I think it could be read as her playing just the doe-eyed innocent mm-hmm. and, you know, nothing else. But I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's, I agree with you. I think there are layers to what she is doing and it is a great, great performance. Um, and here we are. I mean, okay. So here you could no, but I don't think there's a possibility that you she's could, just you could really say friendly. That Paul. A, right. I, this is the moment. <laughs> She kisses her, she undoes her blouse, and now the way Emma is sort of looking off into the distance. At first there was fear, there's still a little bit of fear, but now there's a little bit of shock and and an element of excitement and surprise. Yeah, what's going on below the frame? And you get the impression that some of it is that hypnotic vampirism, but some of it is just self interest and letting go of that level of control that she's always had to employ over herself right being of a uh, you know of the family that she's in and and just you know oh you have to act a certain way and do certain things we i think if that scene had gone on any longer it wouldn't have been out of bounds for Emma's face to look not unlike Dan Aykroyd's during that one sequence in Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, makes sense to me. I, I th- But the only other thing I wanted to say is that it's reminiscent of Barbara Shelley. Um, oh, totally. And what she's capable of. Totally, totally. As a matter of fact, at this point in Hammer's career, like... You know, who knows where Barbara Shelley was at this point? I would have to look it up. But in 1970, I could almost see them playing like a mother-daughter duo. The, the I was going to say, I, I – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the ages probably wouldn't have – you know, you kind of have to look over it a little bit. But I, I think they totally could have done it. Yeah. By the way, can I just say uh, for two seconds here, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Kate O'Mara here. Yeah. Uh, encoring for Hammer from Horror of Frankenstein. Again, I mentioned many times on this podcast before, she was the Ronnie in Doctor Who in the 80s. Very, very good actor. Also somebody who doesn't really get the credit that I think she deserves. I think what she's doing with her very limited screen time in this movie is really, really fascinating. And I think there's an entire movie, or at least a, 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 a meteor subplot, that she could have been given that I think would have been fascinating and would have supported itself, you know, what her own wants are and what she's willing to give up to get it. And unfortunately the movie kind of jettisons a lot of what could have been done with her and understandably so, but I, and I think a lot of that is probably just what she brought to the role, you know, uh, that she really imbues her character with an inner life and a history that probably wasn't there on the page. Yeah, uh, Kate O'Mara is great in this movie. Um, so much so that uh, Carreras offered her a contract after this film, and she turned it down. Um, she didn't want to be typecast. But yeah, she's she's phenomenal. I I love her in this. Like, I mean, I I love Barbara Shelley, and I always want to see her in things. And I think it would have been interesting to see her in that role. But Kate O'Mara delivers. Um, and there's even, I mean, and again, if you want to really get into the overt sort of 
lesbianism of the film, there's very clearly an Ingrid Pitt, Kate O'Mara attraction on top of everything else. So like this scene right here, like it's not just one woman. Now this is far more predatory than what's happening with Madeline Smith. But I oh, totally, because I don't think there's any, the sadness of Kate Amara's character here is the fact that she thinks that she is going through the same sort of beats and seduction that we imagine that Emma believes that she is, that there's something genuine mm-hmm. there. Whereas we know that Carmilla is actually, it is fully predatory because it's all about keeping the house in line with, you know, what she does with the, uh, you know, in that sequence, I think it's all about control. I, and I, I, it's a very sad scene at the very end or near the very end when that character has that realization that she ultimately didn't mean anything to her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And as much as I love the, the sets and the design and everything, it would have been nice to see this at Bray. (laughs) I think it would have made it feel connected to those older movies in a way. I wonder if they could have filmed at Bray at this point. Like, I know they were long past it, but would anything have prevented them from sort of money? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they were L street at this point, um, which it looks great. I mean, it's, it's well, it, it, my only problem with this movie, like visually is I think it's almost like too bright. Like it's, it's very well lit a lot of the movie. And I, I almost think that's to its detriment sometimes. Especially the, I mean, not necessarily the exteriors, but definitely the interiors. There's almost yeah. a, a flatness to it. Right, yeah. There's too much light for, for a movie like this. It should be a little bit more bathed in shadow. Um, like, even right here, it's just, there's no dynamicism to it visually. Um, but... Or there's less of it. And sometimes, like, like she just had a dual shadow going on there. Like, some of the lighting is just a little wonky. But, you know, I'm getting I'm getting nitpicky. That's that part of the commentary where I get nitpicky. Well, that's fine. <laughs> you know, we were talking about Ingrid Pitt. It is curious. Um, when I first started really getting into Hammer, not necessarily when I was a kid and just enjoyed the hell out of them, when I would really, you know, whenever I would run across them, but... About a decade or so ago, it's probably been, yeah, my goodness, it's probably been 12 years ago now, uh, when I was really getting into them and trying to collect every title and see everything. um, At around that time, there was a company, I forget their name, that was putting out these mini busts of, um, you know, hammer icons. Uh, So it was kind of like a column, but the column sort of morphed into a bust of the, uh, you know, whoever they were doing a bust of. And, you know, they were marked with like this great, gloriously gothic H for Hammer. And uh, the I think there was only one run that was done. But the three that were chosen, Paul, if you had to choose three icons in all of Hammer to represent the company and what it meant, which three characters would you choose? Mm. And which ones do you think they were? Oh man, <laughs> springing this on me right now. Sh- shall I go ahead and tell you? Or <laughs> I want to hazard a guess. Well, you're saying three iconic characters that represent all of Hammer. Yes. Dracula. Okay, so so let's say the most popular. So if you were okay, oh if you were, if you were launching just, a line of Hammer busts, what would the first three? Be? Oh, okay, all right. Well, you would do you would do um. 
you do you do dracula you do yes. cushing is or no, cushing, god lee is dracula yes cushing is frankenstein yes okay um the got two of the third, three uh, the third one is where I feel like it's going to be a wild, wild card. Well, it might um, be germane to the movie that we're watching and my lead in. Really? They went Ingrid Pitt? So the three that they put up. What? Were, and so keep in mind, when I was actually getting into Hammer, that was part of my introduction again was, okay, Christopher Lee's Dracula, got it. Cushing's Frankenstein, understood. Ingrid Pitt's Countess Dracula was the third bus that they actually released and which i thought was kind of fascinating and so it always kind of occurred to me that ingrid pitt was an icon when it came to hammer and yet looking at her contributions to hammer we have the vampire lovers we have countess dracula where she essentially played elizabeth bathory even though she isn't called elizabeth bathory in the movie uh is it is it elizabeth uh nadasti i think something like that then then beyond that paul like that that's pretty much it so she was she was definitely paraded like when this came out careers paraded her out as sort of like this is the face of hammer heading into the new decade yeah that was the intention but that stuck but my I, i guess my question to you is is like Obviously, like, I think Ingrid Pitt does a marvelous job in this. She's she's great in Countess Dracula, too. But do either one of those movies justify to you that sort of iconic status? (laughs) That was cool. Well, I don't know. I mean, Vampire Lovers is an iconic Hammer film. Like, it really is. And it, it, but to answer your question, does it justify you know, saying like, okay, let's boil Hammer down to three characters. No, that's not, if I was choosing it, it wouldn't be her. I mean, Lee, like, yeah, like Lee and Cushing in their respective roles, absolutely. Um, But there are other movies, even even one-off movies that would be worth probably celebrating. But I also think like, the thought process probably had to do with something along the lines of, well, we want a, we want a female character in there. Well, that's it. Right? That's it. Exactly. So and she's the most, one of the most recognized female. I mean, there's a lot of female stars of hammer movies, but unfortunately they're generally supporting roles, you know, that, that don't get that sort of banner love. Whereas Ingrid Pitt got sort of the title character treatment that a lot of the other hammer women never never received but even still like no carolyn monroe you know mm-hmm. like i mean it, obviously oh they yeah carolyn monroe for sure or they wanted to represent or hammer barbara connection. shelley for god's sakes barbara I mean, shelley i could almost see not being that and you know i, I, I get love, it but i also like am annoyed by that because yeah i mean i love barbara shelley the best actress they ever employed Agreed. I mean, unquestionably, she's one. Of the, and I, I know, like, I'm trying to get away from actor, actress and just say actor. Um, I am, too. And it's tough. I go back and forth. And I, and, and, right, I forget yeah. myself often. So I, I apologize in advance. Um, trying but to listen I, to the little girl from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as best I can. <laughs> yes. No. The word I, actress oh is nonsensical. 
Oh, that watching that movie for a second time was like revelatory. By the oh, way, I told you, I told you. it gets <laughs> it was it was movie. it was life changing. I was like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> like the, the first time you watch it, it which... you can't, you you just can't enjoy it in the same way because you're so. I mean, I think I told you this. It's like you're just so worried about what's going to happen to that, you know, poor woman that lives next door to them the whole time. And then when the ending comes, I mean, I don't want to spoil that movie, but when the ending comes along and it's something different, you're like, oh, okay, cool. I can, this is fun. I can like this movie. I don't have to be worried. And so the second time you watch it, you're like, oh, all right, I can just have fun with this. <laughs> I don't need to worry about anything. And isn't it like revisiting old friends? A little bit. Yeah, I watched it. Um, interestingly, I watched it with my brother-in-law who had never seen it. So I watched it with somebody who was watching it for the first time while I was having my second viewing. So I kind of got to relive my first viewing, you know, like through him because we were in a house with the kids. So we had to pause it a lot. So we would end up having to pause it like every 30 minutes, but it was great. Cause then we'd talk about it. So it was like, we pause it and we talk about what we were seeing and what was good and what we thought might, what he thought might happen. And then we'd, have to go back to it and then pause it again which i know sounds like a nightmare but was actually really great for that movie um i can see it playing well in installments like yeah it worked uh, really well like in pausing it here it's it's very much like a novel anyway and yeah and uh, we had to like get up and get drinks and i was drinking it was a day drinking movie too which was awesome (laughs) oh you have to drink i i was i'll tell you this I was pretty much drunk for a week straight. <laughs> like I was drinking nonstop and it was wonderful, but uh, I digress. Well, you need to watch the movie more than anything. Forget anything that I've recommended to you up until this point. Watch the movie another round. I, I have so many movies to watch that it would be shitty to those other movies. Put it not. at the top because right, it right. is a celebration of, you know, so many movies about drinking are all about the dangers of it, right? It's very, every, every movie about alcohol in some ways oh, goes a round. little, I thought you meant another round. <laughs> I thought you were telling me to watch, uh, once about a time in Hollywood for a third time. Oh no. We, I didn't well, realize you meant should. the movie another round. I get yep, it. Yes. yes no, should, that is but... one I want to watch. Yeah. It is excellent. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, movies about alcohol tend to lean a little reefer madness uh, at times. And Another Round definitely does. It, it, the movie Another Round is it, it's not about the evils of alcohol. It's about the importance of moderation in all things. And so there are scenes where these guys are hanging out and having drinks. And just those sequences and the note that the movie ends on are full of such joy that I just, I want everybody to watch it, especially people like this is a drinking podcast. Like I almost want to do a drinking episode just while we provide an audio commentary for another round. I'm in, I'll do it. <laughs> That'll get me to finally watch. And it. the connection is, is that it stars Mads Mikkelsen, who I feel like would have been amazing in a hammer film. So, you know, Oh yeah. Yeah. He would have been great. But, um, okay. So yeah, I no, just it's... sent you a couple of text messages you want to oh, check your phone, me... I have sent you images of those hammer busts. Okay, I will check it once I find my phone. I don't know what I did with it. Oh, here we go. Okay, yeah, interesting. Those are cool. Wow. 
that was your heart was not in that at all. Oh yeah, you were like this I like the I like the monster Frankenstein's monster a lot. <laughs> that one. I, honestly, I think my favorite might be Cushing's Van Helsing, with the two uh, candlesticks. Yeah, it's it's hard to okay. Yeah, it, like the picture is kind of fuzzy, but like I'm looking at it now, and yeah, that is really cool. Making the cross with the candlesticks, that's awesome. I dig it. I dig it. I dig it, too. I don't have any, like, hammer paraphernalia. Like, I don't have any posters. I don't have any, like, figures or anything, which is weird because I'm such a big hammer fan. I have, like, nothing. I have a Vigo Dracula, and I think that's the extent of it. I might, you know, I might have a poster. I have, like, a hundred posters in my closet that are not framed that just need to like, I need to do something with them. Like I get these posters and then I'm like, okay, someday I'll get these framed and hang them. And I never do it. This scene is super striking cool. here. Yeah. I was going to say this scene's pretty cool. And that kind Again, of like, she's so like, and uh, yeah, fuck it. I'll say it because obviously that was the intent of both actress and director and actor. And director and, you know, obviously the movie, but she is like insanely sexy in this film. <laughs> yeah, she's meant to be. But that shot is like the way she plays that character. And again, just the shot in the diaphanous gown and then like her attacking the guy. But then you cut to the shot of the man in black in full silhouette watching over. it. I mean, that's it, it's just pure gothic beauty. And I love it. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, her. Yeah, of course. Her 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 kinetic like level of attraction is is a part of her character. Same thing with, you know, it's like saying um, you know, Christopher Lee has a a a power, like a, a sexual power over women in those early movies. Like he he sort of commands the room in that way. Um she has that same ability as a woman, right? <laughs> Ingrid Pitt is very attractive and and can weaponize that attraction. And she she's aware of it um, and uses it to her advantage, which is, again, a, a predatory move and indicative of what the vampire does. This is something we've seen vampires, male or female, do in movies for as long as Hammer has been making vampire movies. Um, so it's nothing new, but the way it's leveraged in this film conjures up different things and different ideas about sexuality and, you know, its fulfillment, you know, and, and I think it is important, um, on the scale of like, you know, queer films because it, it definitely treats it in a way that normalizes it and doesn't make that element feel in narrative, particularly, you know, wrong or subversive. It's just more like, no, this is just, this is what she's doing. And it just so happens that, you know, her focus tends to be on females and that's just how she is. And so therefore it, it's a little bit more normalizing than if it was, you know, people saying, well, this is wrong and, you know, making it a whole big thing in that way. 
So I do think like that's kind of a cool element of the movie. Yeah. yeah I agree. I do love the moment with <laughs> where she's sort of sizing up the maid there quietly. Like, am I going to have to seduce and bite her too? <laughs> is that where this is going? I've got my hands. Yeah, she might again. want to. I mean, that's my thing It's like, well, it's just, it's what she wants to do. So go for it. Like if you're a vampire, seduce who you want to seduce. Don't you feel like though, if she wanted to, it would have already happened by this point. Yeah. Or maybe she just wasn't hungry. <laughs> oh, buckles on the hats, guys. Come on. It's a look. You know, I mean, we could bring it back. I'm not against it. I am. You don't like buckles on the hat? No. No, sir. No. Sir, no. Just give me a boater's cap with like a red band. Let everybody look like Kolchak the Night Stalker. I'd be happy. That's coming to Blu-ray from Kino. I saw that, uh, which is nice. That'll be the last bit of that franchise that's actually made it over to Blue, uh, aside from the remake from the early aughts, of course. So it's nice that Kino put out the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler. Now we're actually going to have the series on Blue, too. I'm really excited about that. But Kino, damn it. Last September, you promised us some Santo on Blu-ray in 2021, and we've had no more word about it. And every time I tweet him, I get no response. Nobody <laughs> has. I'm getting kind of pissed here, Paul. You have to trust the boutiques. Trust them. They're working hard for you. Yeah, but 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 no buts. Yes, no, yes buts. Trust them. Yes, buts. Uh, because the rumor seems to be that they actually somehow there was a rights issue and that they're ultimately not going to be releasing them. If they were going to be releasing them by the end of 2021, you would think that we would have gotten an update of some sort. So it bums me out that they might have gotten everybody jazzed about those releases lost the rights and they're just trying to save face by hoping that everybody will forget as opposed to taking two seconds and saying like, Hey gang, as it turns out, these aren't actually coming. So sorry, but maybe they're still trying to get the rights. Maybe they're, you know, they haven't given up the ghost yet. Have you gotten your uh, blood for Dracula yet? Uh, no, you don't no, know I haven't. what that is. Do you No, It took me a minute. I've ordered so much shit. You dropped about no, 50 bucks on I the thing. Yet. I got my new vinegar syndrome box. I haven't tweeted that yet. And I oh, got nice. some of the criterions I ordered. What'd you order criterion wise? I only went with uh, some link laters that I didn't own. Um, what did I order? I ordered, um, oh my God. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, nice. Um, Dazed and Confused. I got that one. Um, I ordered Deep Cover, uh, Bringing Up Baby, and another one. What was the other one? I can't remember the other one. <laughs> uh, I did uh, I did Slacker, Dazed and Confused, and Boyhood, and I already own the before trilogy, so I am now caught up on Link Later and Criterion, so... Nice. Yeah, I have the before trilogy. I've never seen it, but I have it. I bought <gasps> it. Paul, 
Paul. Yeah, I, I know, I know, so I know. I'm waiting. So I, I I bought the thing. I bought the damn thing. I bought the Criterion box set. I just, it's like one of those trilogies that I feel like I need to be in the right headspace for because I know it's like a big sweeping sort of long form emotional relationship type of deal. So I'm kind of like waiting for, I don't know. I'm I'm waiting for me to be in the right mood for it, but I'm, I'm excited about it. I mean, the three movies, the three movies are three entirely different moods. So it doesn't matter what mood you're going to be in because it's not going to carry you. It'll be right. It'll be right. I will say this. It it would almost work better for you if you did do them piecemeal instead of trying to marathon them. I I would actually recommend against that. Um, Watch the first movie and then give it a while and then watch the second movie and then give it some space again before you get to the third, because uh, yeah, that makes sense. I'll, you know, I'm weird with movies. I like to like, I'm very excited to see it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's why, why I bought it, but I like to get things, put them on my shelf and then just kind of wait till the moods, mood strikes, you know? And it's something I look forward to then. Okay, I think we're getting close to maybe one of the sexiest shots that any Hammer film ever had. Uh, which is going to be more personal than not. Uh, your mileage may vary. But um, <laughs> I'll go ahead and say it. It's Ingrid Pitt biting the guy's ear. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've I've got a thing about ear biting. It's a thing that's probably too much information for you listeners. It. But it's... Uh, yeah, no, it's well, what I like is his immediate uncomfortability, <clears throat> which, again, then turns to lust. But when she first bites his ear, there is a sort of, well, this isn't right kind of look he gives. And there's an element of anger to it. But then it transitions to sort of an animal lust, which is very different from when she sort of does the same sort of seductive things to Emma. You know, Emma's reaction is sort of like fear and shock, which turns to sort of like uninhibited pleasure. Um, so there's a, there's a dichotomy that's happening between sort of the male and female reaction to the vampire and that lust that she's inflicting or, I guess, drying out. Um, and one could argue that when it comes to sort of the man, it's more violent and sort of, um, again, animalistic than the woman, which is more sort of pure and um, kind of... I don't want to say reserved, but also maybe true to self, you know, true to what she really wants or desires than, you know, the the other, which which might lean itself again more towards that that lesbianism that the creators, you know, were unwilling to fully acknowledge. <laughs> Yeah, you got all of that from the ear biting. What I got as a viewer was, hey, my knees buckle when that happens. Uh, we're at Ingrid Pitt. I might actually explode. Um, Which is fine. I mean, that's fine. It's Ingrid Pitt. I get it. 
So she's no. she's a very pretty lady. <laughs> I love this entire flashback sequence because again to me Reverse with laughter. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. I I, no, I saw the exact same thing. I love it. <laughs> It's weird to see like a Dracula esque vampire just like cackling on a horse, like Travolta from Battlefield. <laughs> 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 um, no, I love that entire sequence of them sort of uh, staking and lopping the heads off of all of the uh, the Karnsteins because more than a flashback, it plays like the ending to a Hammer film that we've never seen, and you yeah. could almost yeah. do like. You could do the Baron Hartog story, I think, as its own thing, and it would be completely satisfying. Yeah. Well, I think the the I mean, for Hammer fans, the coolest thing in the world would be if Hammer came back now and started sort of remaking their movies in a connected universe. That's what we all want. I right? don't I mean, know. I I want them to That'd be so cool, wouldn't well, it? I kind of I kind of want them to, what I want them to do is Actually, what Universal will plan to do with their dark universe, even though they botched it spectacularly right out of the gate, what I would love for Hammer to do is treat all of the older films like canon. Mm -hmm. Recast all the roles. Don't remake anything. I don't want to see somebody's remake of fucking Horror of Dracula. Um, But do more Dracula movies. Do more Frankenstein movies. Do more Karnstein films. uh, Do a Jekyll and Hyde flick. And just recast the actors, tell new stories, but have these movies provide a vague backstory. Kind of what, um, I hesitate to even say the fucker's name, but kind of what Singer and Company did with Superman Returns. Superman Returns was a standalone movie. Like, if you know who Superman is and what he's about, like, yeah. you can go into that and be clear. But it also used the Christopher Reeve, eh, Christopher Reeve movies as kind of a vague backstory. Uh, so that those movies could still be considered canon. And I kind of wish that modern Hammer would do the same thing. I don't want to see a Captain Kronos remake. I do want to see a Captain Kronos sequel. You know? No, I, I um, agree. Yeah, you don't have to remake those movies. It's, like something like Kronos, 100% doesn't have to be remade. And if you do, that's the thing. If you did a Kronos movie, given what the, uh, the, 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 the sort of uh, the lore is in that first film, if you did a standalone sequel that just recast that guy, didn't contradict the events of the previous movie so that fans could watch it and be like, oh, great, it's the same guy, you know, still. But, you know, it, it would have to be unencumbered by plot so that uh, or any sort of references to the previous movie that new audiences would, you know, they can't be lost. It has to be a good jumping on point for new viewers. But you could use that character to actually spin out a brand new connected universe. You could bring Dracula into a Kronos film. You could bring different, you could bring Karnstein, you could bring all these different figures into the same franchise and let that be kind of the seed that births, uh, you know, the, the HCU, you know, the hammer cinematic universe. Uh, Oh, I would love, I would love to see Kronos versus Dracula. That would be amazing. Who would win? Um, you know, it would have to be a tie, and then there would have to be a greater evil where the two of them team up. And then, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, Godzilla would win clearly. Mm. Um, but not only that, you know what? You didn't what? answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know who would win? Kronos would win, and Dracula would be back in a sequel no matter what. Is the dull but 
100% correct. Here's what I think would happen. Kronos kills Dracula, but not before Dracula turns Kronos. You know, I was actually thinking about this. So it ends with Kronos now a vampire. You know, the thing he hates. And that's what actually you could do. Okay, here's how you do the HCU. And then with the continuity. uh, I was going to say, the sequel to it is now Van Helsing has to hunt down Kronos. Okay, so see, I would, to free all of these movies, like in the new movies, from the continuity of the previous films, you would have to go beyond not just the stuff set in the 18th and 19th centuries, but also even like, you know, 1972 and all of that. Use Kronos as like, do the Captain America thing. He's bitten, he's turned into a vampire, he's entombed like Barnabas in uh, Dark Shadows, right? Then, at the end of the movie, have him awaken in the present day. So you bring the entire Hammer universe into the modern day, but you still have that connection to all of the old films. I like it. And you would totally have to have, like... Yeah, you would. I, that would actually be amazing because the Van Helsing that you would have in the present day, you could get away with just casting anybody who looks remotely like Peter Cushing, and it wouldn't have to actually be Peter Cushing. Right. Or, damn it, oh my god, Paul, bring in, like, Stephanie Beecham, who, is she still alive? Oh, yeah. And have a genuine connection to the old films. I'd be so in for all of this. I even, I'd be in for, like, when it eventually goes off the rails... And they do like a Dracula in space or something. I'd be in for all of it. Every last thing. <laughs> See, this is such a sad sequence to me. Like it is. That, it, is it is. There's a lot of that's what that's, I'm saying. Is this movie gets this reputation of oh, it's so exploitative, there's nudity and lesbianism. But it's actually like a really emotionally compelling story. Mademoiselle Peridot here, she's so hopeful about what she thinks she's been promised. And then she reaches Carmilla. And then that look of horror, I think on Perdo's face when she screams, isn't necessarily knowing that, I mean, it's gotta be part of it, knowing that her life is about to come to an end, but also the fact that she's just, she's being betrayed by somebody that she, you know, loves potentially. Uh, It is funny. There is this great anecdote where during the shooting of that scene, um, Ingrid Pitt's teeth, kept falling out oh yeah uh, cleavage so apparently according to the uh the tale let's print the legend um she reached into like a grip's mouth who had chewing gum pulled out the chewing gum affixed it to her fangs shoved them in place and managed to shoot the scene um finally without them falling out which i think is uh i hope that's exactly what happened it's wonderful it's no, I agree. And it's, but the other thing is like, you have multiple women who sort of are seeking the love that Ingrid Pitt's character can potentially provide in their eyes in a world where they've been sort of like courted and, um, you know, told to be loved by men who are not providing sort of the, emotional sustenance that they that they require right and i think that's where that's where you know when we talk about it as a quote-unquote seminal lesbian vampire film or film in general i think that might be one of the most important elements of it is it's not just about the fact that you see madeline smith and ingrid pitt topless and kissing 
it's more about the fact that it's portraying women seeking, you know, love and can. men and that they're not interested you know of getting from men um and that part of the movie is handled fairly uh you know well and in a way that doesn't feel exploitative at all to to those themes no i agree and this the finale here is so damn beautiful like i just the fog, the sets, the costumes, it's it's everything that we love mm. about Hammer in a period where some of the movies seem like they prized those things a little less than they had before, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful set design. And and again, like here, <clears throat> pretty pretty good lighting, like the the smoky atmosphere. Um I love the sort of decrepit castle around them it does feel like this could be a set out of an earlier vampire film that we've seen that's been abandoned you know it feels in line with hammer's sort of repertoire especially seeing cushing there yeah it's it's hard not to imagine him as van helsing here that's the thing i wonder if it would have been that hard to tweak the script and make it Van Helsing. Would it have lost anything? No, if they had I think done it would that? have been stronger. I, I, I think the hard part with making him Van Helsing would be not to make him the main character. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I could figure is that... And you know what? It would make sense then, like, if the man in black were Dracula, then it makes sense why a sort of vengeance was being meted out on Van Helsing's family at the beginning instead of you know, the random general that he plays, you know, with his daughter being taken by uh, uh, Mirkala. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just going to, from here on out, when I watch this movie, I'm just going to pretend he's Van Helsing. Let's do it. John <laughs> Forbes Robertson is Dracula and Peter Cushing is Van Helsing because why the hell not? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Paul, does it give you pause? That in a movie that does deal with heavy lesbian themes, you have a group of men ramming a stake into a woman to set things right. Yes. <laughs> just check. <laughs> just wanted to make sure that wasn't. I mean, it, look, it was inevitable, right? I mean, that's how all these movies end. It would have been more interesting, though, for a a woman to take charge, right? Like for Kate O'Mara to turn and realize that what's happening and for her to do it would have been probably more in line with the themes the movie presents. But yes, for a bunch of old white men, well, everybody in, in this movie's white, for a bunch of old men to take a phallic symbol and drive it into the woman who's exhibiting lesbian tendencies to get everything back in order is certainly a problematic gesture. Um, although one could read it also as like, you know, that's sort of the problem is that's the patriarchy, not allowing that sort of love to flourish when it should well be able to. 
And now that she is freed of her lesbian lover, she falls into the arms of an awaiting gentleman. That and is also a problem for me. <laughs> Although, again, I'm going to choose to read it as she's never going to be satisfied with him. So it's not a happy ending. Oh, probably not. No. Like, like, like even though, yeah, she's falling into his arms, like it's already been shown that like she is not interested in that. And now what all they've really done is ensured that her life will be sort of trapped within a lie. Yeah, it plays really. I mean, on the one hand, like just so far as the text goes, this is a man who lost his daughter to what he views as an animal. So this is like a very just and right thing that he's doing. But you're right. Under the surface, it's really icky. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't even know that the filmmakers fully understood how icky it was. You know, I it's like it's so. I don't know, built into the societal norms that they were conforming to, even within sort of the challenging elements of the movie that I doubt anybody really fully recognized the problem, problematic nature of those, of that ending to everything that had already come before it. It's not a satisfying ending in my eyes to the movie that we got. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if there's a version of this movie that might've ended with, uh, you know, Carmilla and Emma sort of escaping those Mm -hmm. men and going off into a future together where, Maybe Carmilla is, you know, uh, a bit more protective and not as, you know. I think I think an ending with Carmilla and Emma walking off hand in hand, both bearing fangs, would have been more my speed. Slaughtering all of the men before they do. Yeah. Yes. Like, I think you could have done almost the same climax where all the men go to kill Carmilla, but she's not there. And then then sort of a surprise attack on them. And then the guy goes to retrieve Emma and she's in bed and he goes to wake her and he pulls the covers down and she bears her fangs and bam, he's gone. And you end it with those two sort of leaving together now able to sort of actually begin their relationship without being pursued by these men who want them to conform to this society that has no interest in their rights or their, or their own interests. (laughs) Yeah. So John Trevelyan, the BBFC censor might've exploded to such a degree that he might've taken the rest of the BBC or the BBFC with him. Uh, had that ending happened, I imagine. Um, yeah, but no, I I think that would have been more interesting than what we got, which is fairly, you know, what we get is a routine vampire movie ending, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's very hastily done. It's very tacked on. Yeah. That's my problem with it too, is that it just feels okay. Well, this is how all of these movies have to end. We didn't put a lot of thought into it. It's not very interesting. It's not very dynamic. Nothing. There's nothing here that you haven't seen before. You know, it's not a windmill is used as a cross. It's. Here's a guy, he's got a stake, he drives it through her heart, she dies. The end. It's 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 a little boring. 
all things considered, which is disappointing because the movie in general is pretty inventive with how it presents sort of some of the classical tropes that it utilizes. It is curious because that ending pretty much comes directly from the source material. Yeah. So, um, what do you make of the weird Dorian Gray painting of Carmilla? Yeah. That it's such a weird choice, like to have not to not have any setup whatsoever. You know, it's just it's such a bizarre note to end on. I, it is weird. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it. If I'm being totally honest. It, I don't know. It it just feels um, like it's from a different movie. Like they wanted some sort of interesting visual cue about her degradation. Like you know, here here's this. I, I guess I guess the easiest, most simplistic way to interpret it, and the way I interpret it as is, you know, she it wanted to conjure up. A representation of her true age um, and show that, you know, the beauty you saw was a fabrication, that it wasn't real. Um, and the Dorian Gray element is very well known. It's something everybody is sort of like, it's a zeitgeist thing. Everyone kind of knows what the Dorian Gray style portrait means. So it's an easy visual cue to remind the audience that the beautiful woman you just saw die was actually this ancient decrepit thing that was leeching off of the world around it. Um, so to try to maybe bolster why what we saw was like the appropriate ending, you know, because most audiences are going to want the beautiful creature that we're watching to survive and move on. I don't know that that was the right way to do it, but that's kind of what I see it as, I suppose. No, no, I get that. It is a curious choice. But we have somehow, some way, three hours in, reached the end of The Vampire Lovers. Paul, <laughs> overall, thumbs up, thumbs down. How do you feel about the movie overall? Um, I So thumbs up. I like it. Uh, it's not one of my favorite Hammer movies. Um, but I do think it's good. I don't like the ending. Um, but I think the rest of the movie offers enough, um, to make it worth watching. And I think you can probably walk away from the film sort of ignoring the last couple of minutes and still celebrating some of the things that it does that were subversive and important and positive, uh, for the queer community in general. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it, too. Um, it's a movie that holds up. I think it exemplifies sort of the best of, uh, well, if not the best of Hammer during this period, then, you know, I think it's surely up there. Um, great performances. I think it's beautiful. I think Roy Ward Baker was the absolute pitch perfect choice to make this film. I am curious to see what I'm going to make of uh, Lust for a Vampire, which I've never seen before, and is the second installment in this uh, this loosely connected trilogy. Because um, I, I don't know who directs that one, actually. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious to check it out, and we should be getting to that one in a couple of weeks, I believe. So, 
All right. But yeah, overall, I would recommend the movie to any sort of uh, <laughs> Hammer newbies out there who maybe uh, haven't gotten around to watching much in the way of Hammer. I don't know that this would be in my top 10 recs, but nevertheless, I think it could do far worse. Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Paul, why don't you go ahead and tell folks out there where they can find you at online and uh, what they can keep an eye out for from you in the future. Yeah, uh, you can find me as always on uh, Twitter at Paul is great 2000 because I'm very modest and, uh, you know, it's reflected in my Twitter name and I will tweet about horror movies and uh, articles and things that I write so you can look out for cool stuff there. Good deal. All right. As always, thank you for co-hosting. No problem. Happy to do it. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> all right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.